Hi, and welcome to Coco Disaster. I'm Chorpsaway. And I'm Zane Zero. And it's time in our seasonal coverage to talk about the summer 2017 season. We finished a lot of shows. So many shows. We're here to talk about them. In fact, uh, Zane, I think in the first uh, time since this show has existed, we have one commentator who has not dropped any shows that they watched during a season. Hell yeah, I stuck with everything. (laughs) (laughs) Truly remarkable. I can't believe you picked only good shows. (laughs) Yes, only good shows. (laughs) You you lucky best. Well, mm, you're right. Good is is an operative word here, (laughs) and we need to think about how we use it. Because I also finished the show that is, mmm, whew, wow, buddy. But, um, uh, <laughs> oh my god. But before we talk about all the shows we watched and whether or not we liked them, there's some news to be talked about. Surprising amount of stuff happened in the two weeks since our last episode. Uh, first, and maybe the one that is, like, uh, sparked the most, mm, discussion's not the right word, but, um, outcry <laughs> is that, um, J.J. Abrams, uh, director of, like, the new Star Wars movies and such, or Star Trek movies and such, I think also Star Wars, is going to be directing a remake of Your Name with Paramount Pictures. You know, this is, this is, wasn't exactly what I thought you meant by the biggest news, but this is also the big news. Oh, right, there is a, there's probably bigger news, but this is the one I heard the most about. And this is, and it's just like, J.J. Abrams and Paramount Pictures have won the rights to adapt your name into a Hollywood blockbuster. Which just like, I, like, J.J. Abrams, sure, like, for what it is, seems like a director that could handle it, but it's just like, in comparison to, say, your Ghost in the Shells, or your Death Notes, or even next year's Battle Angel Alita. Those series are old enough that there's like a nostalgia to them, that there's an interest in sort of like rebooting, readapting that and like turning it into its own thing. But your name is like fairly new. You know, it's like a couple years old at most by the in by the time it comes out. This just feels a lot like sort of a like a, a like a cash grab, right? Like Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It it feels like a cash grab. Right, like I get that your name is very popular, but this just feels like, oh, well we can take this and we can also, you know, find that audience. We can also make this big money. But like not only I think are the audiences for say like your name and your average Hollywood blockbuster like different, it also seems like when one of the one of the plot points in it is so connected to sort of like uh living in a place that is wrapped up in sort of like Japanese um cultural history and sort of like, you know, reviving these old cultures. We don't really have that sort of same thing in America, so it's like a really weird um adaptation to make if they're going to like localize it. I had a terrible thought, and it was, what if they try and turn it into something like, uh, in the form of a re- What was it? Uh, live, kill, repeat, or whatever it was renamed. Oh, yeah, uh, a live, die, repeat. Yeah. Yeah. What if they did it like, what if they did it like that? Like that, and you don't know it's an, it was in a manga first, or whatever. Yeah, you change the name, you completely redo the setting, but then at that point, like, 
you're not adapting your name. And I think coming out like this and saying it is different than like Live, Die, Repeat, which was like secretly an adaptation of a thing. A secret anime. Right. It's secretly based on, uh, you know, this light novel instead of, you know, this, this kind of like bigger thing where it's like, oh, yeah, we're totally making an adaptation of your name. So, like, they can't really sneak it in, I don't think, unless they change the name and don't attach, like, the based on this award-winning movie or whatever. Eh. It, it might happen. We don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say right now. They just announced that they're doing it. So, you know, it's, we have, we have no idea how it's going to turn out, how it could turn, but it's just like in the wake of a lot of these, um, bad uh anime adaptations that we've had this year it's just like ooh, buddy wow <laughs> there, so yeah, it's just there's not been a good track record yeah so i mean i bet they'll strike that lightning once where it's like where it is unlike like a live die repeat where it is actively based on the property i feel like one of those is gonna make it at some point but i don't know if your name is it i mean it's like it is probably the most pop of all of the things they're trying to adapt. It's like, I guess, the most accessible, but I'm not sure how they're going to do with it. Eh, who knows? Yeah, I'm, I'm not <laughs> looking forward to it, but you know, I'll, I'll keep an eye out. Uh, then in some other news, we have a Professor Layton TV series. Yeah, this came out of nowhere. Yeah, like... Of all the level five properties that they've like really gone whole hog on this um like uh multimedia project thing, I feel like Professor Layton has been like the most resistant to that somehow. Like they got that movie, but mostly it's just been games. Like it hasn't really sort of like popped off as like a franchise. Yeah, the movie was apparently good though. Yeah, and it's like Professor Ligon's kind of a sleeper hit of a series where it keeps doing well enough to get new ones, but, like, the more it exists, I feel like the less it's talked about. It's it's really weird. Like, I I was surprised that Layton 7 even exists. <laughs> yeah, and, like, it's it's certainly, like, not quite the same as maybe, like, a the contemporary, like, Phoenix Wright stuff, where people are still talking about Phoenix Wright, it feels like, where people don't really talk about Professor Layton, maybe because the story and the characters aren't quite as, like, involved, because it's a lot more about puzzle solving. Well, the story in Layton Games is, um, something. It's very <laughs> it, something. It starts out pretty, like, uh, and then it really, like, mmm. Like, if they get to, like, game two and game three, like, whew, wow. Like, I want to see, I want them to do the casino scene. <laughs> oh god, yes, that would be great. But uh, did they even say it was going to be a straight adaptation of the games, or is it going to be its own thing? They they haven't said. All we know is it's next year, and it's going to be 26 episodes. I'm really curious as to... Yeah, like, like I said, I'm curious as if they're going to do an adaptation of the games, or if they're going to do a completely new story, or what. Yeah, like, just based around, like, their average adventures, because, like, you can't really adapt the the puzzle aspects. You can't, like, present these puzzles to people in the audience and expect them to solve them in the same way as, like, Leighton does. And, yeah, I just... 
I don't know how you would adapt that part of it, so I guess they'd have to really go deeper into the story of what's going on. I feel like I should watch the the late movie and see what they attempt to do and how they in- integrated puzzles into that. Right, because it because it is like a one off thing that's not attached to anything. It's what Professor Layton and the Eternal Diva, I think it's called, or yep. something like that. It's on Steam, so cool. you can watch <laughs> cool. it legally. Cool, I'm glad it's canon. Right, the only way that you can watch it legally, I believe, is through Steam, which is awesome. <laughs> I don't know if it got a dub or not, but God, I wish so because the the, the British voice acting is charming. Yes, I'm. I would be great not to hear Rouge the Bat as Luke. God, that's such a weird. Uh, voice actor connections are weird. But yeah, so I guess level five. I mean, they they just put out that new game, didn't they? Of um, Leighton's daughter. Yeah. Also, it's which on- first of all, who did Leighton fuck? Who did Leighton? I don't know. I want to know. <laughs> that's the ultimate puzzle. Also, it's on YouTube for two bucks. Oh, is it- oh really? It's uh, the movie is also on YouTube. Yep. Hell, just searched it. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah, so, man, I don't know what to think about that, but, like, the Ace Attorney anime in 13 episodes was a little iffy at times. It was 26, or 25. Was it 20? Oh, fuck, you're right, because they did more. Uh, I totally, I've totally forgotten at this point, and I watched it. Yeah, apparently, from what I remember, it was like, it it slowly got better as as the anime went on. There are parts of it that it does better by, like, skipping on a lot of the sort of like back and forth that phoenix has to do in the game and also like really downplaying the fucking um circus one they they really oh thank god right i almost forgot it went through the two games and that's why it was 26 episodes but like professor layton is also sort of like that i feel like it's sort of the same thing does this lead up to the professor layton versus phoenix Wright anime uh, Do they adapt? Do they adapt that? Oh my god. <laughs> like, if they're gonna do the Leighton series and they're gonna do the Ace Attorney series, why wouldn't they just do the collab? Really sell it? I am absolutely terrified at the prospect of a, of a, of the Leighton versus Ace Attorney anime because that game's ending is such a fucking thing. <laughs> like, just, oh my god. Oh it, would, oh, it would be so much. Oh, it would be incredible. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, who knows? I'm I'm kind of interested in the Professor Layton TV series just to see what it is. Same here. Um, some other news is we, we have notice on the final um, Digimon Adventure Try film. It's finally ending. Hell yeah. After what? what, like three years uh, in work and six movies. Summer 2018 is the debut of the sixth uh, movie, and it's finally going to end that. I forgot it was six movies. I thought it was only three. No, I actually thought it was seven. A lot changed in the development of Digimon Adventure Try. (laughs) Yeah, like it was, wasn't it supposed to be an anime at first? Yeah, it's supposed to be a TV series, and they're like, well, we're going to do movies, and then I feel like they changed the number a couple times, but they're, they're finishing it, and I mean, it's coming out in home video, it's, uh, it's streaming via Crunchyroll, which is kind of wild, it's like same day release for streaming, but um, yeah, I, it's, it's weird to think that it's finally over, because I feel like 
I feel like I thought it's over multiple times just for how long it's taken to get here. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just wild. And I hear that it's getting better as it goes along. Like, it's, like, it's structured like an anime series where the first movie has nothing happening. God, really? And then things happen. So, that's, it's just a weird thing to also, like, spend so much time building up to. That's so weird. I don't know what Toei's up to, but I'm glad that this is, like, ending in a way that, like, people then can just, like, watch the whole thing and get the full story instead of these, like, six disjointed movies. Yeah, I imagine it would be much better watched like that. Yeah. So, yeah, here's here's to that. Then we also have um, My Hero Academia uh, officially got a third season announcement. I am so excited. Right at the end of the, the last episode, and they haven't said when, except that it's next year. Oh. And that it's covering the forest school trip, so it might just be another 13-episode um, season, depending on how long that is. Having read the manga, I know exactly what they're going to cover next season, and it's going to be 26 episodes. It's Okay, it's there's, di- there's like a whole thing? Okay. It's, it's all, they would not cut it off after the, uh, the summer training camp. That would just be cruel. Okay. <laughs> that would be rude as hell. Yeah. But yeah, uh, they they already announced the third season, which is cool, because like there's there's enough manga content I feel to to cover all that. So it's nice that they're just like, yeah, we're gonna make another one of these. Don't worry, it'll happen again. Yeah, I'm I'm glad they're gonna get to that stuff because it's it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, then we have um two count them two sort of online anime announcements. Two. Two. So one is a continu- continuation of the Sword Art Online story. It's called the Alicization Arc. Which is like, I think, nine novels. So it's probably going to be like a- another 25, 26 episode series. And then also the this side story called um, Gun Gale Online, which is written by the author of Kino's Journey, is going to be getting an anime. I, I, I'm still amazed Sword Art, on, Art Online is popular enough to get that. I mean, it's, it, it's sort of like, I honestly like, see it as like the new gateway thing. Like it is, it is the shonen thing to get people into anime. It's the Naruto of the 2010s, and that's a terrifying thought. <laughs> right, but a light novel this time instead of a manga the, to keep up with the times. Yeah. And the only thing I really know about um, the Kino's Journey author in regards to this is Kino's Journey author loves guns. Just absolutely adores guns and talking about guns. So I'm sure, if nothing else, the designs and the accuracy of Gun Gale Online will be wild, because it seems like it's. It's, like, very military-esque in the way it's set up. Does Kino's Journey have an equal appreciation for the amount- for guns? I think it does. They talk about guns a lot. I think everyone carries a gun. Who boy. Certainly the main character does. So, you know, got- <laughs> look, you gotta have your interests, and sometimes it's guns. <laughs> uh, then- 
an announcement after we recorded our last one, like pretty close after we learned that One Punch Man for the second season is moving away from Madhouse and basically the 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 main like staff, like the director and everything is changing. And it's being done at JC staff instead of Madhouse. It's weird. Yeah, it's weird. And like, this happens, right? Like, Dagashi Kashi season two is going to a new studio. Um, my teen romantic comedy snafu went to a new studio for its second season. Like, this isn't totally um, unprecedented, but like, not, not to dig into JC staff, but that is definitely like a step down in terms of like general, like technical ability. Yeah, I remember, like, one of the reasons why One Punch Man was so good is because they had, like, a lot of animation talent work on it. Yeah, and a lot of those were, like, freelancers. They were, like, freelancing a lot of new talent and using a lot of money to get that. And I just don't know if JC Staff has the, the prestige or the coffers to be able to, to keep up with that. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know what changes in there or, like, if the art style is going to significantly change. I think, like... The character designer for the last one is still sticking around, but, like, I don't know what this means for the animation, because, like, th- I think the biggest thing about One Punch Man as uh, a medium, at least for, like, especially in the West, it's, like, the, the really well-done animation. Yeah. You know, it's, it's about f- fitting that Murata art style. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a hell of a task. And, like, they can't even... They can't even really drop back to, like, emulating his style with, like, Mob Psycho, because Mob Psycho had so much style to it and, like, huge budget for all of its special effects that, like, there's, there's no way to not be compared to the, the, like, love and craft of the previous one adaptations. It's, it's gonna be interesting to see when it actually, uh, like, for... Like, the PVs and stuff. Yeah, I'm nervously, like, waiting for it, because it's like, they could still, you know, it could still be good. I'm just wondering what it looks like in the hands of someone else. Yeah, I'm withholding judgment until I see some of the stuff in motion, and then I'll know, oh, it's not gonna be as good, or whatever. Right, or at least, you know, but I think it's, we still have to wait till next year to figure that out. I think... The plan was originally for it to come out this year, but Madhouse got so swamped with projects that they had to push it to someone else. That makes sense. <laughs> Madhouse is busy. Yeah. Plus, like, if if we're talking about, like, big things that they're probably working on, they have um, Cardcaptor Sakura coming back uh, next season. Oh, God, that's right. They They have a huge, you know, they have huge shoes to fill with that, with sort of, like, this revival of this long-beloved franchise that they did originally, so, yeah, like, I'm sure Madhouse is busy. Uh, then just a couple other quick announcements. It looks like the the entire main staff of the Monthly Girls Nozaki-kun anime is getting back together um, at, I think, uh, the same studio, um, Dogokobo, to do a, a genuine romance TV anime. <laughs> Aww. Which is interesting, because Monthly Girls Nozaki-kun is sort of like a romance anime, but entire- but like, it's all like jokes. Like, it doesn't actually come to anything, none of the romance comes to anything. But it's still very stylized like that. And so this team doing 
an original series that is like now genuine is like I, I'm interested in that sort of um, dichotomy. Yeah, I heard uh, Monthly Girls and Zonky Coon was quite good, so it'll be interesting to see that staff work on uh, an original thing. Yeah, it was really good, and it does sort of like the parody of that shoujo style really well. So I wonder how they handle something like this. Uh, by the way, the name is called uh, it, the name of the series since we didn't get to it is uh, Tadakun does not fall in love, and sort of the only picture we have for it seems to be like a photographer and uh, a woman in a wedding dress. So I don't know how like serious, how sort of like deep this this series seems to be going. But like them doing a genuine romance anime and then having to to come from this this uh this very comedic like romance anime is gonna it's just like an interesting thing like i know that this is just how that works but the fact that so much of the staff is coming back for it just is like this weird sort of um setup because i think it's like the director it's the script writer it's the character designer it's the animation director and the the composer are all coming back. So like a lot of the the head of figures have already sort of like, you know, been into this particular sort of like style. So I'm interested to see what they do when they have to take it seriously. Well, they probably know what they're doing then since they worked on that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to to see what that is. It's just like one of those things like, oh, weird that they're doing like something that takes seriously what they've, you know, made jokes about before. Uh, then we have, um, in a continuing uh, lineup of new anime games, we have Gintama Ranbu, uh, Project Last Game, which is, um, I think, a third-person action game in the Gintama series that's supposed to sort of like coincide with the end of the anime and the end of the manga and sort of the, the final like serious bouts that the, the characters of Gintama have. I have a lot of questions about that, such as, <laughs> I thought this was a comedy manga. How does it have a third-person action stuff in it? Well, it's, it is a comedy one until it gets to the actual plot. Like, there's a whole plot and it's about sort of like the Shinsengumi and there's, like, they have to protect the Shogun. Like, uh, Gintoki actually has kind of an arc and there are serious bits to it. It just happens that it sidetracks a lot with comedy. Well, so it it's it's a it's a series like that. So it's going to be fighting. There's a, there's a whole thing about that. What's weird to me is that they have like a limited edition that includes like anime song CD, a drama CD, and quote sixty additional voiced lines, which is like <laughs> such a weird thing to be like. Oh, if you get the limited edition, these characters in the video game speak more. <laughs> this time they tell jokes. How do you hide 60 voice lines as, like, premium DLC? It's just... It's real <laughs> weird. Uh, and so far, all we know is that it's getting an English release in Southeast Asia, sort of the, like, Dead or Alive Extreme 3 kind of thing, where it's getting an English release, but it doesn't seem to be coming west. So mm. There would still be a way to play it, but it's just, like, an extra step you have to go through. But yeah, I guess, you know, it's it's weird because, like... I guess Gintama's had some fighting games, but, you know, Gintama always does read so much as, like, a comedy series, you almost forget that there's a lot of fighting and stuff in it. And, like, all the characters are trained to fight, even though they don't do it, so it could be interesting if they go 
like even like a dynasty warriors route with all the characters and their different like affectations and stuff like they have all different weapons and stuff it could be neat uh then i guess the other like big news we can talk about now since the rest of these are just basically like joke things uh we have the staff of komodo friends all got fired from working on season two of the anime yeah that's hella fucked up which like it's a staff of like eight people so it's like super fucked up and they're the only reasons that komodo friends is popular so it's extra fucked up to just like cut ties with the studio and the director and the animator it's just like such a weird thing to do on like a company side i guess if they think that they can do it in but like it's not that it's like cheap to make because it well to be fair it does look cheap to make but the 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 thing about mono friends was always the heart the feelings put into it by the people who made it even though they're making an anime adaptation of a dead mobile game yeah and it was, you know, people latched onto it enough to revitalize it as a franchise. So, like, it's a big deal. And to just suddenly fire people, it's like a whole thing. And, you know, I've, I've seen, like, information about, it, like, the, the stocks for um, Katakawa tanked on the day that the firing became public. Uh, and, like, people have been doing outcry and they've been, you know, canceling pre-orders. They've been going through all this stuff to show how much they dislike this sudden corporate decision. I really hope something comes of it. Yeah, I don't know if anything's gonna come of it, or if Katakawa is such a big company that they don't care. But it's just such a wild thing to do, especially when, like, it feels like the, the, the groups there, like, uh, what's the director's name? Tatsuki, is, like, putting together this, like, bonus episode just for, like, Nico Nico to show for the fans you know working on this new game and everything and just to like cut ties with them is such a such a weird decision to make and such a bad decision to make it feels like because man has the outcry been oof, and katakawa has yet to say anything about it so who knows like what's going on you know on the interior but yeah just like what a what a thing for them to do what a scummy thing for them to do yeah for real yeah, like, I didn't even watch the thing, but it's still, like, just kind of, like, a, a shitty thing to do when these eight people are the reason that you even get to make more things. Like, and it's for as, as unceremonious as it sounds as well. Anyways, there's, like, a new streaming service. <laughs> Verizon has started a streaming service, I guess, called Go90, which, so far, is streaming just dubs of uh, Aniplex titles. <laughs> As far as I know. Oh? Like, uh, Anaplex announced that they're like, oh, we're doing a, we're doing a dub for Anohana, and we're doing one for God Eater, and it's exclusively gonna stream on this Go90 streaming service by Verizon. <laughs> God! And then they got, like, they got a bunch of the, the older ones, like Gurren Lagann, Your Sword Art Online, things like that. And it's just... It seems like it's a free app, I guess, because Verizon doesn't need money, but it's just like, oh, we had another site that we have to keep track of. I mean, it seems like this is way cheaper than buying any of Anaplex's stuff. Yeah, it's free, so I guess that is better than actually having to buy an Anaplex thing. Yeah. Oh, finally, this app doesn't cost $200. 
And then I think the streaming service also announced that it's getting, uh, it has some kind of, some kind of partnership where they're getting, like, Ultraman TV series, too. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah, it got Ultraman Neos and Ultra 7 X for streaming, which I know that Crunchyroll has some of the Ultraman stuff, especially, like, the newer stuff. They have Ultraman Orb. Yep. It's <laughs> good name. But, like, it's weird that Verizon is getting into this, too, especially with, like, a free app. Because the last time they did a free app, it was called Daisuke, and Daisuke died, and wasn't very good. But, like, I guess maybe Verizon is attached to such a big company that they don't have to care. I guess so. But if they're just, like, getting dubs and stuff, I guess it's not too bad. And also if it's free. So, like, it doesn't cause, like, another, oh, well, I guess I have to pay ten more dollars a month to watch anime. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll see how that goes turning out. Then, um, this is the, this is the anthropomorphization minute. Because it turns out, more anthropomized things are uh, being released as apps. Oh? First, we have Hiragana Boys, which is based on the Japanese writing system. Oh, man. Uh, which are all, they, all the characters are different syllables. Is this, like, a, a thing for kids? I... Maybe it does look very mm, kiddish, like, in the designs and everything. Like, it looks very, like, for kids in a way. I'm not positive this is supposed to be... It's like a puzzle game, I think? I'm not entirely positive. I can't grab all of it. But yeah, it's like... It's... It's already... Like... In pre-registration, it apparently had 80,000 players ready to go. Cool. So I don't know if it's for kids or if it's just another, like, concale, but it's language this time. And then, like, I don't know, the character designs are cute enough, and they're all very distinct, like they're done by different artists. So that's fun. Uh, then we have the newest game by the, uh, the, uh, the company behind concale and uh, Toranbu, which is Idiom Girl where they make moe girls out of different uh, idioms. <laughs> That's incredible! In Japanese. Yep, so, uh, I... Yeah, wow, buddy! <laughs> I don't... I don't know how you decide the, um... what they anthropomorphize as, but these designs are mm, a lot. <laughs> it's just like... I, I think I can foresee them. Yeah, they're they're very mm, extra, I think, in a way. <laughs> and like, I guess that's fine. Like they're they're doing whatever. They're building their whatever game they're doing. So, I mean, look, DMM's made plenty of money. They can keep making these. Even after the last game they did, which we talked about last time, the Shrine one didn't didn't go anywhere. Aw dang. And then the last one is a different project which is based on Scarecrows. So, like, they, like in, in Japan, they have all the different ways that they draw the scarecrow faces and stuff and dress them. And now they're attractive young men, uh, meant to be the new face of a particular city in Japan to help promote the local rice crop. So, kind of like Rice Boys. Neo-Rice Boys. <laughs> they are named after and inspired by real people in the local community. God bless. <laughs> That's sort of charming, but also a little weird? It, it, it's, um... Yeah, it's... Man, all these anthropomorphization projects, I wonder... 
like for these ones in particular where it's supposed to like help business or like help a um like a particular facet of Japanese community how well they do because they've done other ones for like uh joining the army and they've done one for like train stops to help promote like lo- you know tourism and i just i i wonder if the numbers are out there for whether or not this actually helps like i know that people will pay a lot of money to like see things and like buy merch and stuff but like these particular ones where it's like here are some cute boys that are based on scarecrows you can find in rice crops. Like, how how far does that go until people stop, like, you know, finding their, their faves and, like, really standing for them? That, that's where I, I'm curious about how this goes. I feel like as long as they can keep hiring character designers that people like, they'll keep making more and more and more. Right, and keep hiring, like, the classic um, voice actors. Like, if they get, like, Aoyuki to do a voice, I'm sure that'd draw some attention. Yeah, for sure. So, I could, yeah, I could see it. It's just, man, they, they've really gone whole... Whereas, like, in America, you see fewer mascots, they go, like, whole hog on mascots in Japan. And it's, it's charming, in a way. God bless. So wild. I kind of wish that uh, American products still had mascots, but we've gone through so many at this point that it's like, it'd be hard to sort of like recapture American audiences with like a new Frito Bandito or whatever. Like, we still have Chef Boyardee, right? We still have the Chester Cheetah. But for the ones that died, I feel like bringing them back just hasn't worked. Like, remember when they brought back the that, that sexy hamburglar? <laughs> Oh, Jesus, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, remember Sexy Hamburglar? So, <laughs> I can't. So, like, I feel like that failed, and they wouldn't do that with, like, Grimace or something. They're not bringing back the Noid, so I feel like we're just, like, we're left with the mascots we have, and we'll never get another one, which is a little sad. Hey, hey, don't forget about Yo Noid 2. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, Yo Noid 2 did get made, so maybe this ironic appreciation will bring back the Noid. I mean, it brought back Bubsy. God, you're right. Oh my god, fuck, I forgot. Oh, sometimes I want to forget that Bubsy's getting a new video game, but he is. On Halloween. Ugh. They should make him an anime. No! <laughs> he had that failed cartoon pilot, they can make him an anime. Speaking of anime, though, it's time for us to talk about our 2017 summer anime that we watched. We watched quite a few. Yeah. Um, what, I, what I was surprised by is how many um, original series we watched and stuck with. Because it feels like, you know, especially in anime these days, it's like very heavily focused towards adaptations and stuff. So to get three good shows out of it is really nice. And even the ones I didn't finish, it's like nice that, the, you know, these are, these are being uh, developed more. Yeah. So let's start off that discussion. With Princess Principal. Yeah, that Princess Principal is really good. Yeah, so we talked about it before. Uh, Princess Principal is about a bunch of, like, teen spies, uh, teen girl spies, living in sort of an alternate history, like, steampunk Europe, where, like, half of their country has been separated by a huge wall. And it's sort of about their, their investigations as they sort of stop 
I guess the the army equivalent, sort of like you know the 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 nationalist group and the 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 things that they do within that. And it's written by the Code Geass guy, and we talked about how it could be good, could be bad, depending on how long it goes, and it could be real dumb. And I think ultimately it came out good, like it came out charming in a way that I maybe didn't expect from that uh, author. Yeah, it had a lot of really nice character moments throughout the whole dang show, and I really appreciate him. Yeah, so Princess Principal is like kind of partially a, a Joker game style, sort of like just series of spy missions that they do, and like how it plays into sort of the grander plot of this this war that's going on. And then other ones that are a lot more about sort of like developing the the five main characters in the group. We have, oh shoot, I'm going to get any of these. Uh, it's Ange, it's Beatrice, it's um, Chise, it's Dorothy, and it's... Uh, Princess Charlotte. That's right, Princess Charlotte. Okay. And so I, I was confused because I kept trying to think of an E name because it does the ABCD thing. And then it's just like, oops. Yeah. Gives you a second C one. Although everybody just calls her princess anyway. Yeah. And like the, the episodes are sort of out of order for uh, really no reason. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really change anything. But sort of we see sort of like, you know, missions before they meet Chise, who's like this Japanese... um like correspondent in a way like japan is coming to europe and like figuring out who they want to side with because they're trying to build their own power in sort of this part of history where they're pretty weak and so we see them without chise we see as they like integrate chise into their culture and sort of like share these cultural things and like most and then it comes to a head with sort of a, a major plot that's sort of hinted at throughout the series and so, like, I guess to to talk about this um, early is sort of like, what were your like favorite parts or like favorite episodes that you watched from this series? I think my other than like uh, the finale, I think my three favorite episodes were the one where they all go to a um, to the washing factory and get it all like spiffy and run up, and they like help them out for a change. Right, they infiltrate that um that laundry mill full of other like teen workers. Yeah, and they like there's a mission they're they're actually doing something there, but it focuses more on like them trying to make the working conditions better for the girls who do this sort of thing, and it's a really kind of heartwarming sort of thing that they do. Right, like you get a little bit more of the the character as like the princess like buys out the laundry mill just to be able to sort of like renovate it and set up this this way that these girls no longer are in, like, pretty dangerous situations just cleaning clothes. Yeah. So, like, it, and they can do more work and make more money and sort of, like, really helping these lives before they, they pull out because they've completed their mission. Yeah, it, it speaks to Princess's character of being genuine about wanting to improve her country. Right, because that's, like, a, a whole thing is, like, the princess joins this this group sort of because she is able to catch, like, the spies off guard and know what they're doing. And, like, the whole thing is trying to figure out whether or not she's a traitor to the cause that she's arguing for. But throughout the story, like, she shows to be genuinely interested in her people and trying to help them out. And, like, 
knowing what their life is like on the streets. I mean, specifically, it's it's Dorothy who's told to be suspicious of Princess. Ange is trustworthy of her for uh, reasons that you probably want to watch the show to find out for. Right. But yeah, so it's it's it definitely develops that character well, and that's sort of like Chise is learning to let loose and make friends as well. Yeah, Chise has a lot of good episodes. Yeah, like uh, I really liked the duel episode, not only for its uh its uh history accurate racism. <laughs> yeah, but also for the fact that uh the the bad people like when they do an actual duel, like the walk ten paces and shoot at each other. And she say like, <laughs> uh, or no, just throws the bullet, right? Yeah, she uses her uh, part of her robes as a sling to throw the That's bullet. Right. It rules. So because her gun is blocked, um, it, she uses part of her outfit as a sling and throws the bullet into this dude's arm. <laughs> Yeah, Chise rules, and then they have their little celebration party afterwards, where they get a whole bunch of Japanese culture stuff wrong. Yeah, it's it's very good. Like, it's clear that they're trying their best, and then they do a sumo wrestling match. Yeah. Yeah, that was another one of the episodes that I, uh, that I had as my favorites, and then there was uh, one other one. Uh, mm-hmm. That was the one where um, you get more of Dorothy's backstory when she goes to the, uh, the morgue. Oh, right, when they have to work in the morgue. Yeah, yeah. I I'm like kind of iffy on it because I feel like the the development of her relationship with her father is sort of a little. I don't know. It it kind of rubbed me the wrong way because it's like, oh, this this guy's like an abusive, and he's got a lot of problems coming off of this like moment where his hand got cut off and he can't work. But like, it never really resolved that in a way. It's sort of like she goes, "Well, he took care of me, so I guess it's okay that all this happened." And he dies, and like. It just, it it feels really, I don't know, it felt like there was, like, not enough resolution in that for me. It felt to me like Dorothy didn't forgive him, but he just want, but she did want to make peace with him, I suppose, to just to get that sort of closure. Right, yeah, it's, I think the, the problem with it is that it's trying for that closure, and then I know that this is, like, the story point, is that he dies in order, because he, he asks for too much to get that closure with her. And it's just like I feel like that's that's the part I'm missing personally from that is like the the part where they actually make amends. That's fair. But you know, it's yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, that mm, that didn't hit quite right. But like, yeah, they they're really trying for like these different emotional things. Like when um when they when they meet the old student that they used to work with, when Ange and Dorothy have to um get information from uh, what's her name, director? Oh, president. President, that's the one. Yeah, I couldn't think of the, the, the like, code name for it. But, like, the one with President where it's about sort of, like, that, that part of their, like, spy school life and the way that they were treated and, you know, all of these different things. I feel like that was really effective in sort of, because it's, like, peer-to-peer kind of thing, where it's, like, colossal expectations and these desires to be like other people. Yeah, that, coincidentally, also an episode about Dorothy. Yeah, like, yeah, you think it's about Ange, but it's about Dorothy, and I think that's, like, a really good, I think there are some clever ways that it, like, subverts your expectations throughout this series. Yeah, I I like the show a lot for when it does that sort of stuff. Yeah, and then I, I, I was enjoying it, like, kind of, it was up and down, but overall I was pretty well enjoying it, and then I feel like the last two episodes 
the the conclusion was really weird to this arc. It feels like this was supposed to be the halfway point of the show, but it's the end of the show. Right, and like they they haven't announced a second season. They probably will get it. It seems like it's doing well. But like 11 and 12, it's like this weird it's also the sort of thing where I feel like with all the character development and stuff, I feel like we maybe didn't learn enough about Ange and um, the princess as characters who have history with each other. Like, I feel like there wasn't enough of that to pay off for, like, the emotional stuff that it goes for. I mean, I feel like there was when we went into uh, the the bit on Ange and there was that episode about their history together, and I feel like that was what they wanted to base it off of. Yeah, but, like, when, um, it was just one particular thing where, like, the princess uh, tells Ange, just like, you know, this is what you always do, you always run away, where, like, I feel like we hadn't seen any of that, like, there's there's a crucial piece, like, maybe an episode missing where it really delves further into their relationship pre-spy stuff that may have made that stronger. Yeah, that's that's fair. That That's definitely something that that's missing context. Yeah, like, it's, it's just one of those things where, like, I feel like we could have used another episode on them specifically, but, like, it's still got the cool spy stuff, like, at its best, it's doing cool spy stuff. Yeah. You know, and, and really plays into each character and their, like, specific abilities. Like, each one is, like, custom, you know, is, is custom made for a particular part of the spy thing. So it's like, they're not all, like, superhuman great things. Like, they have to work together, and I think it does that balance well. Yeah, they are not all Ange. Ange is very, very good at her job. Right, and you so you have, like, Beatrice, who's got, like, you know, has a whole thing about, you know, her father being a weird tinkerer and having this, like, robotic voice box that basically allows her to uh, simulate voices, which helps the spy thing. We have Dorothy, who's actually secretly, like, 20 and uses her sexuality to, you know, get through things. You know, it's, it, it's all these different pieces and all these different characters that do end up, like, complementing each other when it comes to sort of their big missions. And the, the last couple episodes do that well. Even if, like, the, the actual conflict maybe doesn't get resolved super well, and the characters introduced in it aren't super well defined. Yeah. Like, um, is it Zelda? Yeah, it's Zelda. Zelda is not, uh, the, that is one thing I'm annoyed about with the finale, is that that conflict isn't resolved. There is no confrontation between her and a- Ange, because it seems like they were setting her up as Ange's rival. Right, it's this whole A to Z thing, and, like, but, like, Zelda just kind of exists and then disappears when she loses. Like, it's weird that it's two episodes and this stuff felt kind of rushed. Yeah. But, like, you know, it, 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 it happens, you know. Yeah, my biggest complaint with the show is that there's not more of it to actually resolve this stuff. Yeah, like, it, it feels like doing it out of order isn't, like, a wrong thing to do, but, like, it, it cuts over sort of parts of context that would make this a stronger series as a whole. I mean, even if it did that, Ange is the last thing in the timeline, so I don't think that would have helped. Yeah, it wouldn't have helped with 11 and 12, maybe. Yeah, and it's just like, it's still a good series, let's let's not get that wrong. It's still, a, like, a good, fun series that, like, I think subverts a lot of expectations you might come from just looking at the main characters. Yeah. Like, like it is, it is a very serious story wrapped up in 
some of the most moe girl designs. Beatrice. Just Beatrice. Beatrice, like, even Dorothy is, like, a very moe 20-year-old. The the woman working for the, like, nationalist side who keeps popping up throughout the episodes. I feel like she had a name. I don't remember. And, like, it's weird because all of the female designs, if they are, like, under 20 years old, are all very moe. And then, like, they hit that- it's, it's, it's that point where then suddenly everyone looks ancient. Yeah, it's it's such a weird and bizarre contrast, but I feel like it's I like it. Yeah, I mean it helps point out some of the more important characters. And then like also that all the dudes are like 80 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's not a single young boy in the entire series. They're all they're all very old. Well, I mean, that's the s- to be fair, they do go to an all-girls school, so they're not going to see any young, shopping young lads. Right, but when they're walking through the streets, also, I feel like they only walk into old dudes. That's fair. It's just a weird sort of, like, contrast, but it does, I think it is effective in, like, pointing out sort of the difference of using, like, sort of child soldiers. I mean, they are child soldiers, except for Dorothy. Yeah, that's- Right. I'm like, yeah, but no, this this series is fun, and it just does a lot of different stuff, which I think it, it benefits from. Like, the episodic nature, up to sort of, like, trying to, to wrap it all up in the last two episodes, really helps it, because it's sort of, like, just jumping back and forth, kind of doing, like, whatever the coolest cases would be. Like, like when there's that train heist. Oh, the train heist is really good, and that's, uh, that's Chisei's debut. Yeah, like, the train heist is there, and sort of, like, when they do sort of the, the infiltration where they try to get the princess, and they do, um, th- there's just a lot of different types of episodes, which helps keep it, like, fresh, and it helps keep it exciting. It's a it's a cool series, and I'm sure there's going to be more, and it might be interesting to see what this guy gets to do with 12 more episodes of this. Yeah, it, it didn't end as much of an at as much of an awkward point as Code Geass did back when it first did it. But this is, does just sort of, like, end. It's like, oh, well, it uh, the guy who we got put in charge who told them to kill Princess uh, isn't in charge anymore, and now they're on the beach vacationing. Like, it's just, it's, <laughs> it feels like a fake-out ending. I mean, they they actually did foreshadow that, uh, that, uh, the the girl who was part of the mysterious council went off to go and rescue the, their old boss. Right, like, there's that whole thing, but it's just, like, it, it felt so, like, really, like, having to wrap up all the pieces of this mystery in, the in like, the last, like, ten minutes. It's just like, oh, well, we gotta get this all done and leave time for a cliffhanger. Because it's, it's very much a cliffhanger, because, like, they get called into a new mission, and clearly there's still more to be done. Like, this story isn't over. Yeah. In the way that I, I may have expected it to be over. Like, it's definitely, like, vying for that second season. It definitely is, and I hope it gets it. Yeah, it would be cool to see the second season, because, yeah, it, for as much as I may have complaints about it, like, it still does a lot of things really well. It's still, like, trying for a lot of stuff and, like, at least not horribly failing at them if it doesn't always succeed at them. You know, it's, it's got a lot of style. It's got a lot of charm to it. Yeah, I I feel like the episodic nature of it helps. 
Yeah, and the steampunk doesn't get in the way, which is nice, too. And it, it's got, like, one of the, the best openings for this year so far. Oh, yeah, that opening song is great. Yeah, yeah, it slaps, and it's just got, like, it's just got, like, fun animation to it. The song is really good. It's, it's, a, it's, a, lot of, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a very charming series. Now, I guess one level up on the, the self-serious sort of aspect of this, we have Recreators, which is finally ended. We, we talked about it last season. It was about at the halfway point and ended. And Recreators is very flawed, but I think what it wants to say is really good. I agree with that. It, it has some pacing issues. <laughs> some serious ones. Yeah, it's got some real pacing issues, and it's definitely got, like, a five-episode final battle. <laughs> but I think one thing it does about the, the final battle that kind of makes the case that things keep changing. Yeah. It's not just seven people fight one person over and over. Like, new things keep happening to change the stakes. And even though that gets a little tiresome, it's it's a benefit. So we left off on that... Um, that weird, um... The most amazing recap episode in any anime. Right, we we left off on the recap episode, and after that, sort of, we have a couple more character introductions. We have what I thought was a lot of fun is a dating sim character comes through, and, like, given that this is such a, a battle-heavy sort of, like, shonen thing, it's charming that they end up with a character that's just, like, more or less useless. <laughs> And so, and what's charming about that is, like, um, it really plays into that aspect by being, like, you know, um, Hikayu is, is is kind of worthless in battle, and she cries a lot, and sort of, like, the creator's like, oh, well, I, I can get the fans to accept a combat version of her, and everyone's like, what the fuck? Oh, yeah, that rule. And he's like, we'll make a fan disc. And the, and this is, this is something that isn't, like, unique to this, like, um, there's a fan disc for, uh, what is it, Grisaya? where one of the characters just becomes a magical girl. <laughs> and in this one, it's like, she becomes basically like a kung fu fighter. Yeah, it rules. She got cut-ins with all of her attack names, and it's fucking ridiculous. Right, so it's it's this really charming thing that, again, like, one thing I think Recreators does well is it plays into the media aspect of all of its characters. Like, oh, well, we have to write these stories to get them to accept these particular new powers and stuff, and like, we have to make a fan disc for this game and like so that people will accept that Hikayu shows up here in this ridiculous outfit and with this fighting style. Like they they play so hard into that, and I think that's really charming because it's about sort of like how how fiction is created and sort of like the levels of acceptance that come with sort of like this absurd crossover with no cohesion. <laughs> I think it's important to mention that acceptance is pretty much, like, the major word that comes into play in the second half of the show. Right, because it is so much about, like, well, you can't use these powers if people don't think that you could just use these powers. And, like, they've set up all these different things in, like, the lead-up manga, so it's like, oh, well, we have our trump cards just in case it needs to come to this. <laughs> it, it's really charming how deep it goes into sort of, like, the the power of the fans when it comes to media and the way that media affects others. Yeah, I I like that part of the show a lot. 
Yeah, and like it, you you see it too when it comes to like um, when what is it? Blitz Walker like uh, interacts with his creator. Blitz Talker. And, yeah, Blitz Talker, which is a great name. Um, interacts with his creator and sort of like like all these different characters have different relationships with their creators. Um, and like Blitz in particular, it's like because his his daughter died in canon, he sort of sees this more like this villainous like relationship with his author and. His author really does play into that. <laughs> yeah, she hams it up as a villain pretty well. She's she's hamming it up as a villain. She's just like really going hard on this dude <laughs> to the point where she gets shot. But she still like recognizes what she needs to do for the story and the way that this acceptance thing works because she brings Blitz's daughter back to life and sort of like it's it's this very uneasy alliance between the those two. You know, like it, it, it does an interesting job of showing these different relationships. Like there's this very like fatherly role with uh, Celestia and her creator. Matsubara. Yeah. And with um, uh, the Gundam kid and his creator. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't remember all their names, but like it's it, those are like a much more fatherly. They're they're much more like that. And then you have that. And like the only really bad one is Onishi for being like a weird perv for his own character. But like. The fact that they're all so different and they play into the way that these different people, like, look at the things that they create is really cool. Yeah, I, yeah, the, the relationship between the the creators and the creations is something that I like a lot about the series because it's just unusual, that kind of thing. I lost my train of thought there. Recreators is just like, it, as flawed as it is and sort of like how awkwardly paced it is, I think the heart of what it's trying to say is really charming. And it's like, you know, it, it plays into this, uh, Altair is a villain is this character who like really wants to get back at the people who didn't accept her creator and sort of like led her to an early suicide. And like, you know, she, you know, her creator has all these like emotions that went into creating this character right before she ended up taking her life. And they get, you know, reborn in Altair. So, like, based on how you were created and what you're done with, that's, that's like, who you are. So, like, Altair is, like, doing the thing that would align with, sort of, um, Setsuna's darkest moments. And so, like, it's, it's about how you create these characters, like, the context behind them that's important and gives these power to them. And I think... It is a little of a cop-out, but it's also kind of charming the way that, like, the the ultimate relationship between Altair and Setsuna is that Setsuna gets to come back as sort of like a, a, you know, like a ghost or like a a vision. And Altair using um, her power ends up sort of, like, separating Altair and Setsuna from the world and kind of creating this new universe that would allow just them to exist together and to create and to be happy. Which I think, like, that that just, it plays into the themes in a way that maybe is greater than, like, a, a really strong sort of, like, narrative conclusion. It kind of, like, throws out the battle part, but I think it still plays into sort of the, the relationship between creation and creator and the way that we view media. I feel like there's a certain amount of um, deliberate irony that 
Altair wants revenge on the world for not accepting her creator, and yet her powers and her vast, vast plethora of cheating powers come from the acceptance she has she has gained. Right, she is a fan character in that all her powers come from fans. But, yeah, it feels very deliberate to, to do that, and then to use that those powers, the powers of acceptance to say, to sort of accept Setsuna? I, to force the world to accept Setsuna. In a way, I guess she got what she wanted? Yeah, I guess so. In a sense, and then she ends up with her own world where uh, Setsuna is free to create. And Altair is there just to kind of enjoy knowing her creator rather than, you know, this sort of like this intense anger. Yeah. And just like all the, I, I found all the characters ultimately pretty charming, like the creations. And they come from such like broad, like styles and stuff. But the way that they interact is charming and sort of like, you know, it, it, it works because they, they all have these different viewpoints that all sort of come to the same conclusion. Yeah, that that they're all pretty happy that they all don't seem to mind too much that they've been created by someone. Right. And like they, they come to understand sort of like the the way that the creator has a relationship with their work and sort of like, because you see um, Sesame's creator is like, oh, well, I'm going to add like culture to this world to really like develop that world because i realized that i didn't do that right he said he was going to add uh stories and stories and coffee yeah and so it's 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 very charming in that way and like the way that they you know the the creations interact with each other and just like yeah everything about it is like it it ultimately comes out charming because i think what it wants to say is very sincere and is very genuine about the the state of media and the way that fans and creators work together to sort of create the best possible version of a story. Yeah, it's it's definitely a very positive message about about the importance that media can have to people. Create and like it it ultimately comes to here are a bunch of characters left in the world who are inspired to create new things. You know, like, uh, Alice Terry goes back to the world and, you know, her, her world is still sort of like war torn, but it's all leading up to uh, a good conclusion. And Meteora is stuck in the real world, but she wants to create, she wants to write stories. She wants to sort of like honor all of this stuff that's happened to her. She wrote this one. Yeah. Yeah. At the very end, she starts writing recreators and it's like, oh, okay, well, hot damn. That makes her saying, I read the plot, a lot more hilarious in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Uh, but yeah, I, I think Recreators is like a very charming show that sort of like, it, it takes a while to get to sort of its, its best... Its themes? Its best version of itself, and yeah, and its, its themes. But I think what it wants to do is ultimately very charming and very like cool in a way that a lot of other, like, self-referential media isn't. So I, I, I really liked Recreators, despite its, uh, many problems. Yeah. And also, we don't know what the fuck happens with Magane. She just kind of fucks off. She, she just, like, she just flies a plane and is like, oh, I'm gonna live somewhere else. Later, nerds. Like, who even knows if she still has her powers at this point? Because Meteora talks about losing her powers. So I guess she's just, like, living a trickster life or whatever. It's, it's, um, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, like, ultimately, I'm, I'm happy that I stuck through with 
its sort of low points to get to it. Yeah, same here. I'm, I'm. Oh, right. We didn't mention this. We did. I don't think we mentioned that the uh, the plot to fight Altair is to create the world's best crossover fan fiction. That's great. Right. We we did talk about that last time because that was like sort of where we ended off. But yeah, so they they create. Uh, a, a crossover manga with all these characters where it's like Meteora goes to all the worlds and tells them about this bad shit that's happening. And so then what they do is they, they like broadcast an anime film, but it's actually them in sort of like this containment area where it's not actually going to affect the world. And it's just them fighting. Like it's just actually them fighting and they pretend it's an anime movie. Which is great because then you see like the voice actresses who are hosting and stuff like talk to each other like, do you remember recording that line? It's like, no. <laughs> so they're like, okay, sure. Go with it. It's, it's fun. Yeah. It's it- fun. And it, it, it's, it like definitely plays into some good stuff when it really gets going. Yeah. It has a lot of fun with itself, even if it gets a bit long winded sometimes. And I think it's got a, a good message about media and its power. Yeah, for sure. Then we have the the last original one in this block, which is Sakura Quest, which also was like a, a halfway show that ended up finishing this season. And Sakura Quest really started getting more focused in its back half, and I think that really benefited it. Yeah, I can I can see that. Because like with Sakura Quest, like the, the episodic stuff is good and sort of like about them discovering kind of what works and what doesn't, but they they have like a singular goal and everything sort of works towards that, which really helps, I think, focus the characters and their development and the way that sort of like the whole series runs. Yeah, I was going to say we had an actual soccer quest this season and it did do that. <laughs> right. So uh, they, they they're working on reviving uh, a festival to help revitalize the town. Because they realized that sort of like bringing in this other, this, like bringing in this band and doing this whole TV thing didn't work out because it's, it became less focused on the actual culture of the place and it became less focused on, you know, their town. And so they really wanted something that was distinctly about Manayama. And so they, they revived this old festival. They're trying to find all these old artifacts and sort of bring the the citizens all together in a way that sort of unifies them and you know helps to revitalize the city by opening their doors to new people and allowing people to start businesses and you know reusing kind of like uh abandoned buildings so it it really starts to develop like everyone in the town sort of like accepting the the changes that are being made because it doesn't like change the um it doesn't change the way of life. Yeah, it doesn't change the way of life and it doesn't change the personality of Manoyama, but it like updates it. So it's like, oh, well, we have this abandoned school that we're not going to use. We'll hold of an official clo- uh, closing where, you know, old students can come back and sort of see Manoyama. And then we'll also rent out rooms for this different stuff. And one guy like makes like a, a like a jazz club and, you know, these, uh, you know, some people make like a theater group and it's like, it plays into that, and then it's like, with this new uh, festival, they're trying to c- sort of, like, combining, like, the the old traditions of Manayama with sort of, like, a new outlook on life. And so it's, it's you know, it's about bringing the energy back without losing the essence. And I think when it does that, it, it's 
does pretty well. Like Sakura Quest was a was a strong show by the end. Yeah, it was really enjoyable. The the back half had some really satisfying conclusions to uh to everybody's character arcs that happened. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and the ending felt happy in a realistic way and not in like a a fake way. Right, like it's not like oh everyone just stays because they love it so much. It's like people have these different goals and they're still going to like separate but they'll still remember each other they'll still meet back up in monoyama later like everyone's kind of figured out what they want to do even if they haven't figured out like where they want to do it like you know um you know whether it's like oh traveling and still doing these new jobs or going on cryptid hunts you know it's you know everyone has their own goals and everyone moves forward with them in a way that i I think feels realistic yeah it it was pretty i guess positive to see as somebody who's also in that same sort of situation yeah and like all the old people were got like a conclusion too like they they have a like a relationship built up from the start of sort of like being really confrontational over stuff that happened when they were younger and seeing that sort of like develop into i think like you know repairing those bonds was really nice yeah i'm yeah good good on uh on pret on the uh the tourism prez for uh for making amends for what he did. Yeah, and I think something kind of funny is that we talk about all this, but the back half starts with uh, Yoshino uh, being kidnapped by the old people who live in the old oh, folks right, area that of ha- town. Right, that happens after uh, Ruriko meets the uh, cryptid group. <laughs> yeah, so that's how this part starts up. So, like, we we do talk about how, like, it, it is emotionally moving, but, like, and that does play into sort of, like, the old people feel like they're left out of the community because they have to drive, you know, they have to take a bus to get to the main center of Monoyama, and that bus is planning on shutting down. And so they kind of, like, kidnap Yoshino so that they can, um, they can figure out sort of this, uh, this compromise so that they don't feel completely left out, but they still feel like, you know, they're part of the community. And so they solve that not only by teaching old people how to use the internet, which is the most dangerous thing I can imagine. It's terrifying. It's terrifying, but they all like making YouTube videos. It's really, it's really cute how they're just like, hey, here we're making YouTube videos about how to cook turnips and stuff. Like, <laughs> and then they, they start like a flame war with each other. Yeah, that was great. God. It's really great. Oh, it's awesome. And then like, you know, they solve it by like, well, we can't have a full bus. It costs this, you know, this particular amount of money. But we're going to have sort of like this, um, like a taxi bus kind of thing where you can sign up to go at certain times. And so they only drive out when they're needed rather than being on this route that takes time and money that they can't spend. Yeah. And it, and it does feel like, whereas I felt like early on, it was sort of like almost jokey and comedic in the way that they sort of like tried to solve the, uh, the problems of the town. This one felt a lot more grounded and sort of like, these are genuine things that would happen in order to, like, keep this culture and this town alive. I mean, it's, I feel like the grounded stuff wouldn't have worked as well without the jokey stuff, because it was them just, like, trying all these different things at first, throwing them and them not working, and then using that experience to get to these realistic solutions. Right, the first half is, like, them trying to come up with gimmick solutions. And they're like, well, these didn't work. We need to think of something more practical and more useful, which I, does work out. I think that does work pretty well. But yeah, I, I really like the characters of Sakura Quest, and I love the the more focused 
drive of the second half. Like I, I, I found it all very charming and like relatable as like a, you know, a 20 something. It's, it's optimistic, but also it's very realistic in a sort of like, you know, when, when Yoshino talks about what she's going to do after this year contract, it's like, everyone's like, well, you're going to go back to Tokyo where no one gives us shit and you're like, you can't find a job. Like, you know, it's, it's very real in recognizing that sometimes the thing that you think you want isn't the thing that you're going to get. Yeah, like how uh, Maki basically gave up on acting but realized, hey, there are people in this town who like acting. I can put together a theater troupe here in the old middle school. Right, like I'm not going to find, you know, I'm not going to find the big name success. I'm not going to be, you know, like her friend who becomes like a bigger actor or actress. But, you know, she starts the act, she joins the acting troupe. She's like a director. She still has a place to find it. And like um, Sanae, who just wants to escape city life. So she is just staying here and doing her web work. You know, she is still developing stuff and she can work remotely. That's a cool thing about that kind of job. And so, you know, she doesn't have to be stuck in the hustle and bustle of city life. Yeah. Yeah. It really, it really develops the characters well. And I'm really happy with the way it ended. Sakura quest was, it's definitely like not as focused to start, but then it really finds a stride and it really hits it. And I think it does a good job of sort of bringing everything back on track into a, like a, ser- a serious but still fun conclusion. Yeah, uh, they, they still managed to get in some nice, like, lighthearted moments even during, like, the, the last part of the show where it was more serious. Like, they had to get together to save the town from losing its status and whatnot. Right, like, you, you still get a lot of camaraderie out of these characters, which is really good. Yeah, I it's a it's a show that I think was like low key really really good. Like I didn't see a lot of people talking about it a whole lot. But I don't think there's like a lot that really needs to be said about this show. It's just generally good to watch. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fun sort of like easy to watch show. Yeah. And I definitely saw some criticism like early on it's like, "Oh, well, I'm going to kind of wait till it's over because it really much seemed just like sort of like a a high school club sort of thing where it's like, oh, these five wacky, you know, girls kind of do wacky things in the town and sort of like try to revitalize it. But I think as it gets further on, it definitely starts starts focusing itself and its story to to make something that isn't just that. Yeah, it, it finds a strong voice for itself. Yeah, for sure. I, I really enjoyed Sakura Quest and I'm glad I, I stuck through with it. I, I really like the characters. I love the the message and sort of like the way that everyone develops is sort of like, even um, even like Kadada realizes like, well, we can kind of shut down the Chupacabra thing, and we can set we can get rid of this whole kingdom thing that I've put together because like it's not drawing people in, and we just need to look at something new. Like everyone feels like they come to some sort of like satisfactory conclusion for things that are set up early on. Yeah. It- it also doesn't feel like all of the characters are done growing either. It's 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 realistic in that it feels like they've all taken the next step forward with their lives rather than gotten a true conclusion. Yeah, it does a it does a really great thing that I don't think a lot of shows always nail, which is it it feels conclusive, but it also feels like the world is still moving after the like the camera shut off. Yeah, Monoyama really felt after spending 24, 25 episodes with Monoyama, it really felt like a, a nice little living town. Yeah, it, it felt real. 
in a way. And it was, it was really charming in that way. And then the last one before we get to like the segments is um, Kakegurui, which I, I only like half watched because I've, I've read it and sort of like, uh, we can talk about this. I'm not like super thrilled with the adaptation that it got, but let's, let's talk about Kakegurui. So Kakegurui is about a, a, an elite school where um, everything, including status, is decided by gambling. Uh, if you're good at gambling, you make lots of money and everyone loves you. If you're bad at gambling, you're uh, treated as subhuman. Um, and so the story focuses on Yumiko Jabami, who is a new girl and doesn't seem like particularly um, great at gambling or particularly like high in status, but she shows her prowess not only at gambling, but also like pushing people to their extremes. Yumeko is actively the most terrifying person in this show. Yeah, and so, like, she is out to sort of, like, when it comes to gambling, it is either she is going to ruin someone's life, or her life will be ruined. Like, it is it is a very extreme sort of look at gambling, where it's like, if you're not betting your all, there is no excitement to the outcome kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's very extreme. And I, I think it benefits from that in a lot of ways because like when it comes to gambling it always has to be high stakes to be really interesting like the reason that like kaiji is so interesting is because it's always betting huge sums of money or like really grave consequences for failure and same with like akagi and kakegurui does that really well and sort of like if you're so far in debt in this school you're given sort of like a schedule that decides your life after school in order to sort of, like, continue to build the higher-ups funds and sort of, like, basically, like, contribute to, to horrendous, like, capitalism. And so, like, there's, there's always this fear, especially when it comes to, like, the student council who are so high up when they gamble with um, Yumeko, that they could have their entire lives just ruined by one bad bet. And I, I really enjoy that style to it. Like, if there's one thing Kakegurui has, it's it's a style. Yeah, very much everyone in that show is extremely aggressive. Right. Like, Yumiko is not the best character, but she's also not the worst character. Like, she's a thrill seeker, and some of the people that she faces against are actively bad people. So, like... You know, it. she she gets to be, like, a wake-up call for these people, or, you know, like, you know, with uh, the case of um, Midari, it's sort of like a, um, it's almost like a takedown of sort of, like, if Yumiko didn't have any restraints. Oh, you mean the girl with the gun? The girl with the eye patch, like, right, like, she is Yumiko with fewer restraints, and Yumiko like gambles against her to sort of prove how sort of like diluted her particular form of gambling is. It's got a lot of interesting character stuff going on behind it. And I guess the thing that I didn't really enjoy about the particular, the the anime thing is how much it plays up sort of the, the, the sexualization and the like, you know, the, the really hornier parts of Kakegurui. It's a very, 
very sexual show. Yeah, it it has an audience. Having read the manga before this, I'm I'm not sure if going back I would notice that they did it this much. Like at the point where I am in the manga, um it's not like that. Like they've basically dropped all the pretenses of like sexiness to this for like a really serious sort of like I mean as serious as the show can get sort of like plot about sort of like the you know the hierarchy of the school and these characters who are gambling together and their relationships with each other and like certainly with a manga it's a lot easier to like skim past fan service which may be sort of the way I made it through it whereas like with an anime you're going at someone else's pace and sometimes that pace is mm, excruciating when it comes to some of the like sexier parts of Kakegurui. <laughs> I'm I'm just having a giggle over here about how how really terrifyingly animated Yumiko is at times because this show is really good with showing everyone's horrifying faces that they make during gambling. Right, and that's like that's that's also a manga thing is like when they pop off, they really pop off in terms of reactions. Like, they draw every tooth, <laughs> they draw the lips, they make everything very realistic in a way that's very uncomfortable. But, um, yeah, like, when, um, when Midari, like, basically admits on screen that she's like, hey, I'm gonna go, like, uh, J.O. over the thought of gambling Yumeko and, like, shooting myself with a gun, like, it's it's a lot. It is a lot to take in. <laughs> it's a lot, and, like, these are the parts that, like, made it really hard for me to continue watching, which is why I kind of just skimmed through the actual anime part. And why I think I appreciate the manga more is not only have we moved past that, but, like, it's a lot easier for me to just kind of, like, you know, basically pretend it's not happening if I can just kind of skim past those parts and get to the parts I enjoy, which is, like, the the like uh character relationships and the the gambling part because it also in a very like kaiji sort of way gives you like variations on different sorts of gambling and it's like really interesting the way that sort of like people will um rig it in their favor and the way that Yumiko sort of like outplays them despite the overwhelming odds a lot of the time it does come down to raw luck though which is like Yumiko doesn't seize through the tricks and learns how they're cheating, but she's lucky enough to, or skill, or just as skilled enough to be able to keep up. Right, she has to outplay them, which I think is better than, like, the, the immediate um, comparison to this is, like, Gamblefish, where the dude is literally just cheating to win. And it's more satisfying when you go, like, oh, well, this person is the villain, and I'm rooting for the person to, like, see through this trick and be able to beat him. Like when um in the first match with Mary where she like has to figure out the rock, paper, scissors uh gimmick, and like Mary's using all of these students to cheat by paying them off, and Yumiko's able to see through that and sort of like use it to her advantage. Yeah, that that part's really cool when she does that sort of stuff. Yeah, and st- and stuff like that, or like using the the mirrors in the in the gamble with uh Midari to be able to sort of like not win at that point, but to, like, to make it so that no one loses, because it's clear that Midari is, like, 
wanting to gamble to the death, and Yumiko is way not into that. Yeah, she specifically is out to force a draw because because she thinks Midari is out to lose, which she is. Right, so it's like, it, it it's interesting to see how these different things play, and it's just, I, I think the gambles and stuff is what really makes the show part of this good. Like, I think they they animate those well and make them interesting. Yeah. Like, the idle one. The idle one is just, like, a really strong set of gambles. Do you mean the, the one that takes place after it with Glasses Guy? No, well, I like the, I like the one where they're doing, like, the whole event. Oh, yeah, that was good, too, honestly. Because it's, it's a series of them where it's like, well, I noticed that you're giving me these and you're cheating on others and sort of, like, being able to, to f- find a way to sort of, like, crack that. Is cool. And then Glasses Guy. Wow, um, what's his um shoot, I can't think of it. But yeah, the 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 guy in there. The one man who <laughs> and just oh gets so destroyed. He gets so destroyed his hair turns white. Yeah, um so one thing, and I didn't get this far into the anime, but like uh I understand that it has an anime original ending, I guess, to sort of like cut it off since right after that gamble kakegurui sort of goes into like its variant of a tournament arc huh so there isn't like a great way to end it so tell me about this anime only ending since you made it that far uh it's not great it's it's really not great uh apparently the it was even though it was written by the original author it felt really rushed and the gamble itself wasn't very satisfying and it only served to make the mil- the boring male point of view character um interesting slightly huh well i mean like he's used before he's used later in the manga as well but more as like a <laughs> he's basically like a piece to be used by the other characters more than he is like a real character yeah it tries to make him into like you know it tries to awaken his gambling spirit or whatever but it's just uh it- it's it's not very interesting compared to the stuff that just that immediately just happened. Okay, so do they do they end that right after the um the 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 guys uh, gamble? Yeah, it's like right after that. It's only like it's the very last episode. Okay, so they also they don't do the um they don't do the tower gamble, huh? Okay, so that that's actually. The tower gamble is actually kind of where I expected it to end, but yeah, I think that's what was what people were expecting that it was going to be that as the last gamble, right? And so it's, I mean, that you know, I guess it's like trying to open space for like, well, we might not get a second season, but maybe like sort of a wishy washy kind of thing. It's super wishy washy because the gamble ends in a tie, and it's like, oh, well, we're back to the status quo. Nothing happened. Like, if they ended it with the tower, I think that is, like, a good place where, like, not only does it, I think, flesh out the rest of, sort of, the um, the student council, or at least the, the main players in the student council, it also, like, it's just a, a really good, sort of, like, gamble against Yumeko just for, like, she wins it because um, she's not trying to outsmart the other person, while the other person is very clearly trying to outsmart Yumeko. And so it's, it's, it's um... It's it's it would have been cool to see that animated, but you know it's it's only twelve episodes, and like it seems like a weird thing to have chosen anyways. So I don't know if it'll get new ones, but 
you know, it'd be it would be nice because I feel like Kakegurui, if nothing else, is like one of the strongest modern gambling uh, stories. Yeah, it it definitely uses its gambles as a vehicle for really good character interactions, and that's what I like about it. Yeah, it really pushes everyone to their limits, and they have some some good some good gambles out of it. And especially with the, the arc right after this, which is still ongoing, which is sort of like, it's sort of like a tournament arc where everyone's gambling on, basically like you you gamble using like poker chips that count as votes and like, whoever has the most votes gets to be student council president and, for, you know, down the hierarchy for student council. And it really opens up a bunch of different characters, like motivation to like be on top. Like some people want to be on top for power. Some people want to do it just because it means that they do more gambling. Like, there's a lot of similar but distinct, um, you know, like, uh, motivations and goals that pop up between these characters, whereas, like, it is a little episodic um, up to the point where the anime got to. I feel like if it had one more episode, it probably would have actually ended on the Tower of Doors thing. Yeah, because that's probably a two-episode kind of thing. It's It's kind of long, and there's a lot to it. And, like, the character stuff is <laughs> the deepest it, it probably is, uh, is up to that point. But yeah, I, I still like Kakegurui. Like, if you're not into, like, reading manga, I definitely see why this is a good one. But, like, it's, it's, a, it's a hard to recommend sort of show with how much it plays up some of its sexuality. Yeah, it, it's a show that knows its audience is interested in that specific sort of stuff. It's got a very horny audience, and that sucks because I'm an audience for gambling things, so it's like, oh no. <laughs> oh no, I have to see boobies again. I want to see cards. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, I, I don't know, Kakegurui is like a, <laughs> it's a problematic fave, as the kids say. Uh. But it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's fun when it wants to be. <laughs> and I think when it really, like, gets going it's it's a very well put together show yeah i i enjoyed it i had a lot of fun with it just the ending just is not great it's very lame considering what happened what just happened mm-hmm. where you beat a man so hard that his hair turns white and he dies of shame yeah incredible oh yeah the yumiko's voice actress is really good they're all all the voice actresses and stuff, like, all the performances are very strong in the way that they need to be exactly, which is, like, I wonder how that's gonna go for the dub, because this is such, like, a specific sort of show. <laughs> I want to know, like, the voice actor tryouts for this and how that's going to go. How, where do we find the women who can scream the most intensely? And, like, what part do you make them read from that, like... <laughs> Especially for uh, Midari, like, what part of Midari's character do you make them read for? The one where she's really horny for killing herself? <laughs> or, like, the part where she's just screaming, <laughs> like... She is the horniest character in the show, full of horny characters. All these characters have such distinct modes that I don't know what you make them read, and I don't know how anyone comes back after the, uh, after the... <laughs> fucking like tryouts what a show oh, what a show 
And so now, um, I watched a couple shorts this season, so I wanted to talk about them real quick. <laughs> but, um, so I watched Surrey Dury Children, which is a, a short about sort of like these six or seven different interconnected couples in this high school that all are at various stages of sort of like a romantic relationship. And it's basically all about the way that these characters like misinterpret each other. It's like it's it it kind of thrives on a sort of like awkwardness that I think sorry Dury Children does really well, where it's still like charming the way that it's sort of like, oh, they're like young and in love, so it's awkward when they like try to hold hands or they have a lot of trouble like talking to each other and being honest about themselves, or oh, they assume, you know, they assume that these other people aren't interested, uh, but they are like Sorry, Dairy Children kind of does the whole gambit of sort of, like, awkward high school relationships, but does it in a way that, like, thanks to its shorts aspect, sort of, like, kind of gets to the meat of it, lets it happen, and it's done. Like, there's not a lot of fluff to it in so much as the entire show is kind of fluff. But, you know, it's it's cute. A lot of the characters and, like, the dynamics of the relationships are so different. And there are some, there are some great moments that are just like feel kind of real like there's this there's one where sort of like um the, these two have had a fight and so like the the guy is sending texts to like apologize to his uh girlfriend and the girlfriend keeps going like you know if he apologizes one more time i'll forgive him but i want him to really show that he's sorry and as she gets this final message of uh apologizing She's in the bath and she gets so excited that she like throws her phone into the bath and it dies. So she'll never know what he said. And th- she doesn't know how to broach the subject when they talk to each other. So it's, it's this, it's this cute little awkward moment or like one where these other two characters are, are texting and sort of like, you know, they, they want to admit that they like each other. And so like the girl is sending this message sort of like to start a conversation to eventually build up to it. And as she's about to send this message, like, hey, I wanted to start this because I like you. The guy, because he thinks that the girl wants to talk about it in person, sends something like back like, oh, I'm not some kind of like lame idiot who sends a love confession through the phone. Who does that? And so she's like so embarrassed that they, they don't talk for another like two or three episodes. And like, it's a, it's a cute sort of charming series if you can get over that, that hump of sort of like awkward romantic situations. That like I I don't know it it does it does well and it sort of like builds up sort of these ridiculous characters who are sort of like caricatures of kind of like relationships you may have seen in high school. That's I think fun and I think really benefits from sort of like the the shorts aspect by like doing three different storylines an episode. The only really bad part is there's a sister character, ugh, and it's 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 one of those sister characters. But thankfully, she she's in exactly two skits, and like it just would be better if that wasn't there. But they try to do the best with it by um, giving very few parts dedicated to her character, and really focusing on the 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 better sort of like romantic stuff that it's doing. It's it's a cute series overall. I I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I've heard it was pretty good, and it and from. What you've been saying, it sounds really good and charming and cute. Yeah, I think I think one thing it does well, and I'm gonna come back to this point later, is that when it makes these characters awkward, it feels like it, it's it's still low key and realistic enough to not be something that like 
really brings out like a a, a a visceral sort of like secondhand embarrassment feeling. And then I also watched TQ9, which is another season of TQ. Um, the, 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 the amazing thing about TQ9 is that it's two and a half minutes long instead of two minutes. And that's because they added an ending theme. A whole 30 extra seconds of jokes! No, it's just an ending theme. If the 30 seconds are just wasted on an ending theme. Damn and it! What's, what's great about uh, that is the, the ending is like the... I, I think it's easily the most controversial thing TQ's ever done because it draws all the characters as if they were like genuine anime characters. <gasps> what? Like they all have noses and they're all proportioned correctly. And like, it's a wild sort of ending that's just a bunch of stills of them doing very TQS things. Like they're dressed up as ninjas and having to fight off people. And they're like running through fields of flowers and stuff. But they're all just drawn really realistic until the final like three seconds where the song cuts off and it's just them drawn even worse than usual just like <laughs> killing each other and eating their tennis equipment it's really good tq sounds like a fucking time tq is wild and i i've almost kind of feel bad because this season i feel like started off on absolutely its best joke and then just like couldn't deliver but okay so in the first episode it just follows the the character who's an alien as she like tries to experience things in real life and like she gets um she, you know she gets swindled by like a, a maid cafe and she gets swindled by uh gangsters who are doing like mahjong gambling and then there's a part where she's like you know interacting with normal uh normal human beings and she comes across this this little girl who's crying and you know the the alien sees that this this uh balloon is caught in a tree next to this crying girl she's like oh well i'll help take care of this little girl and help her get her balloon back. And so she makes the girl's torso grow like 10 feet. <laughs> and then, and then, but then it turns out that uh, the girl's crying because of the, the, the deforestation happening in the world and the fact that all of the important rainforests are gone. Holy <laughs> shit! <laughs> it's, it's a very like wacky series. And like, I think TQ does its best for it because it's sort of like, it does the straight man versus um, like, goofy character thing really well in that three like all but one of the characters is the goofy one and they have one serious character who just points out how absurd it all is but it like works within the fiction i think really well it's it's just a man it's it's such a fun series um for the 100th episode they they did a they did a character rankings thing (laughs) Where none of the main characters ended up in the top five. <laughs> or actually, one character ended up five times in the top five, and someone who's rich. So it's like, oh, I paid off the ballot. It's 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 a it's a fun little series. And what's great about it is like in the time it takes you to watch an entire season of TQ, you could have watched a single episode of other anime. So it's like you're really getting a lot for the time that it takes. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah, I really like TQ, and I think as long as it just keeps doing what it does best, which is just sort of like non-sequitur, like, you know, mile-a-minute jokes, because I think even when a joke doesn't work out, like, they're they're already to a new joke once they, you know, once you've had time to process it. It's a good time. I love TQ. Whew! Yeah. Whew, buddy. And now, um, to get them all out of the way, I've put the bad shows and the dropped shows together in one segment. And the first one is going to be me talking again, and that's gamers. 
And when I talked about Sorry Dairy Children, it, Gamers is sort of the same thing, where Gamers is not actually about gaming that much. That's just sort of like a hobby all the characters have and share. But Gamers is secretly about a, a, a love pentagram or pentagon of characters who all like like each other in different ways and it's all about sort of the like confusion that they have between each other about that sounds like life is the most confusing game of all ah! oh my god but yeah so like <laughs> gamers is is sort of that sorry dairy children's sort of like confusion between each other but like i feel like ranked up to the point where i couldn't enjoy it because it was so like secondhand embarrassment and sort of like one level above that idea of like these all feel sort of like artificial problems where like if they talked to each other for like even a minute this could all get figured out but it's just this spiraling sort of thing where it's like constantly they they miss um they misunderstand each other in a way that just like gets harder and harder to watch as the thing goes on and it seems like by the end it sort of like fixes all of those things but it's it's such like a hard show to watch for me because it is sort of like hitting all of these secondhand embarrassment sort of things i can understand that i was just gonna say it's hard for me to watch shows that give off that kind of secondhand embarrassment yeah, like it, there's a there's a degree to which it be, it stops becoming like oh it's it's cute and, and then it becomes like really uncomfortable because it it's like too real in a way and but like one good thing I do really like about gamers is its um its dedication to parody <laughs> for video games like very clearly like they draw sort of like um like kind of like mushy box art of things like there's yakuza there. There's this whole Tales of Fantasia like parody thing that they've got going. And then they have a deal with Arxis. So sometimes the anime footage is just straight up some um some like footage from uh Persona 4 Arena. That rules. Yeah, it's awesome. It's just it's just straight up like uh footage from that. It's great. But the actually, there's one good thing that I can just say about gamers like unequivocally, is the the opening is really charming because it is just straight up all of the characters in like various pastiches of video games like there's a part where they just straight up do like a smash bros parody clip and then they're moving from all these different other like recognizable games and genres like call of duty and stuff and it's just like it's very cute the way that they do it for the opening and then like there's just like basically nothing about video games except for the characters relationships to them in the series that's so weird that's really weird yeah i don't know it's 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 for I mean I've talked to people who enjoyed gamers and I get that it's for a certain kind of people person but I I cannot get over that hurdle of like awkwardness and secondhand embarrassment just because gamers it it feels so like I don't know like it it just feels like wrong to me the way that they build that up because it's like it feels like it's so easy to solve in a way that like actual real life awkwardness isn't it was, it, it sounds like it was cringeworthy in a way that wasn't expected by the title. I think the issue is that, like, the character reactions are so over the top and exaggerated that, like, it stops becoming endearing or relatable, and it ends up becoming really, like, <laughs> uncomfortable to watch, at least for me, you know? 
you know what <laughs> you know what isn't hard to watch though but is also very bad um Segway. <laughs> Uh, it's Vatican Miracle Examiner. It's the best piece of garbage you'll ever see. So we both watched this somehow to the completion. Um, <laughs> man. Okay, so Vatican Miracle Examiner, I was like, oh, it might be something cool where it's, like, actually involved in, like, dealing with miracles and, like, people faking miracles and, you know, Catholicism. But really, it's just, like, the Da Vinci <laughs> Where it's like, oh, they're all secretly conspiracies. And, like, I, I say that, but, like, the Da Vinci Code comes off as really, like, pretentious and sort of, like, smug in its superiority over people with its knowledge. Vatican Miracle Examiner feels really stupid but <laughs> earnest. Vatican Miracle Examiner is a great B-movie. And it's got that B-movie charm. Yeah, it's it's really stupid and it's really dumb but it like feels earnest in it like it's trying really hard to build like something that's like a thriller and just like consistently failing <laughs> yeah so vatican miracle examiner is about two guys um who are contracted by the vatican to investigate when a church says oh a miracle happened here to see if it's a genuine miracle or it's a farce because you know there's there's a whole like you know there's a whole part of catholicism that's based around that and like vatican miracle examiner really opens with its strongest case and by strongest i mean so like the whole thing is like oh this this statue of the mother mary cries you know at this certain point every day and it turns out that all of this is actually like an elaborate ruse that's um that's hiding a plot to uh, revive Hitler because it turns out this church was all made by like ex-Nazis who escaped Nazi Germany at the end of World War II and started a church and kept Hitler's body cryogenically frozen so they could keep his sperm and inject it into women when they're under the uh, when when they're under the influence of drugs that they don't know what's happening and they think it's an immaculate birth so they can bring about the next Hitler and. Whew, wow, that actually happened, right? That's it, real? It sure fucking happened. And then and then it ends with like, oh, we we found someone we you know, we we were keeping this this child of Hitler buried in our uh church, and he comes out, and then one of the main characters just throws hydrochloric acid <laughs> on his face and kills him. <laughs> yep. No 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 no. That that does happen, but the Hitler He baby- pretends it's holy water. Yes, that happens, but the guy is still alive after everything burns down, and then a Jewish assassin comes in and murders him because it's his job to go around and exterminate Nazis. Right, oh my god, fucking Vatican Miracles. It's just such- and here's the thing, that took four episodes. <laughs> it did, it's four episodes of fucking madness. So, like, here's, here's the thing about Vatican Miracles, Examiner. When it comes to actually trying to develop a mystery, it's really bad. <laughs> It's, it's got that bad mystery thing of not being able to solve the mystery on your own, because there are so many pieces you're very clearly missing, <laughs> like the Hitler part. <laughs> and it's so long to build up. It took three episodes to get there, and then one episode is every reveal at once. <laughs> it just gets, it just gets weirder. Like, it just builds up this unease and weird, general weirdness for three episodes. It's like, what is this all building to? Oh, <laughs> It's Nazis trying to revive Hitler. It's the most anime thing. And like, 
I could imagine this being better, like more well done in a book where it doesn't have to adhere to this. But like, the pacing's like super bad in this. <laughs> like, not only that, but like each individual episode simultaneously feels like too much happens and it's way too slow. Because I feel like three <laughs> miracles happen in the span of like the last five minutes of episode one where otherwise fucking nothing happens. I know, it builds the <laughs> Like, it's tr- it is trying. I can tell that much. It's just really bad at everything it does. Because it also doesn't look good. It doesn't sound great. Like, <laughs> everything about it just feels like very, like, B-movie, where it's like, oh man, you are really, like, going into this aesthetic, and I don't know if it's genuine or not. I think that's why I like it, because it just feels like such a good B-movie. Yeah, and, like, it sucks that they open up this whole Nazi thing, because, like, the, the ones after this are, like, more what you'd expect from it, where they're just, like, actually, like, solving a mystery of how this person seems to be doing miracles. Like, the one with, um, Roberto's dad, where it's, like, oh, you know, secretly he's just basically doing the, um the, like, astrology thing of, like, saying something vague enough that you could apply it to any part of uh, a situation. And so it seems like he's, you know, predicting the future, but he's not. And the one time he perfectly predicted the future, it's because he murdered someone and just wanted to hide it. Also, the solution to the mystery was a plot by the corporations for oil. Right. It's just, Jesus. And then, like, the last one is like, oh, we have to figure out, you know, why this, like, Holy light appears down on this particular, like, um, cross in the church. And it turns out that it's attached to this myth of the murder clown. And it turns out <laughs> that the murder clown is the way that this, this person keeps, um, keeps people from finding this underground civilization they've built to, like, create gold. It's a, it used to be a gold mine, and now it's a counterfeit operation. Right, Jesus, oh my god. But, like, all of those feel more grounded, and, like, introduces, like, a villain, sort of? Like, a, like a, a, a villain that shows up in several mysteries, and then, like, maybe you should have ended with the whole, like, Hitler thing. <laughs> oh, right, and then in between, like, after the Hitler thing, there's this just really weird episode a one-off about- episode. A one-off episode about this- miracle that may or may not have happened and it's just so weird yeah and like man just everything about this feels like it's trying really hard to do something and just consistently failing the last episode sucks and then the last episode is just really bad because it's like it doesn't close anything (laughs) and it doesn't really like inform us that much about anything it's a real like nothing episode to end on like it really should have been reorganized the real miracle is friendship it's well yeah it's true the real miracle is the friends we made along the way vatican miracle examiner fucking sucks <laughs> i can't believe i watched all 12 episodes because i felt like i was constantly searching for that same high as the end of the first mystery and it just never delivered like it really started with its best foot and that sort of like soured my mood for us not that it's like actually good or anything but like man it's just so good in the first third like in this really bad way and then it just never quite hits that peak again except call like except the fact that there is like a myth going around about the decapitating cloud pretty good i love that they go like talking to 
everyone about that stupid mystery, and then, like, the... <laughs> oh, God. I just remembered that the reason why, like, the, the cross had all this holy light on it is because everybody just gets a little bit high on cocaine. It's <laughs> cool. Uh, and then oh. that guy just fell out of a plane for no reason. Yeah, that happened. That happened. That's part of the episode. That This show yeah. is, is fucking dumb, and I love it. It's dumb in the exact way I wanted a show to be dumb. Yeah. For sure. But yeah, so that's... It was the thing. Next up in this segment, uh, I watched a few episodes of The Reflection, and it's weird because, like, the first episode of The Reflection, pretty bad. This is, um, the mo- this is the anime by Stan Lee. Starring Stan Lee. Starring, well, Stan Lee's in it, yeah. And The Reflection is about, you know, superheroes being brought to an otherwise normal universe, but, like, sort of, like, it was this wave where, like, first, it's sort of, like, created superheroes and there was a second wave of this like reflection that caused like humans to mutate into villains basically because they all became like weird animal sort of hybrid kind of things and the thing about the reflection is it opens up kind of poorly because it doesn't it's jumping around a lot it's not explaining a lot but it has like a very distinct style to it and that's one thing that the reflection keeps consistent is that it has a really strong style to it very sort of like American comics-esque and sort of like the pacing and everything feels very much to that. But like even when the reflection like episode two is basically an extension of episode one where it like gives context to all the things happening so it's not just a bunch of shit happening for no reason. Which is weird and I feel like it should have just been like this this like like one and a half size episode that just had all this. And as it goes forward it like it keeps sort of that charm and this this thing to it, but, like, it feels very amateurish. Like, it's, it's very... It's very awkwardly paced. All the conversations feel, like, just too short to feel like real conversations and just too long to just be exposition. So it's this really weird line it's balancing where it's, like, it's really trying to push forward this plot, but it's, like not great at actually making the characters feel real. And also, like, it's very quiet. Like, it uses music very sparingly, like, only for the most dramatic or sort of, like, action-packed moments. So it's it's a show with a lot of really awkward pauses to it, where it's just, like, the conversations don't flow quite well enough either to be, like, genuine so there's just, like, a lot of really weird silence in between every line. It's like, the reflection, I think, has an idea that's that's strong and has, like, a neat presence behind it. But, like, the actual execution of the reflection just isn't, isn't good enough to hold it up for its 12 episodes. But it's got, like, neat ideas where, like, some of the superpowers are, like, they have this, um, they have this paraplegic girl who has sort of this, like, this wheelchair and the way that her superpowers um, activate is sort of like, it sort of like plays into this by like her wheelchair sort of like transforms into like a mech suit for her. So not only is she able to like sort of overcome her disability, but it sort of like plays into all of that by like, you know, being this, this defense sort of thing and being played into sort of like, you know, the, her, her way of life. That's kind of neat, but like that it's just everything else feels like, kind of half-baked. 
Though, um, actually, one other good thing it does is it has a uh, like a Tony Stark equivalent, sort of like an Iron Man, sort of like you know, uh, like millionaire playboy who gains these superpowers and has like it has like a super suit attached to it. And the way that he like tries to make it distinctly him and try to like spark up popularity with not only his superhero but him is he's like a one hit wonder from the eighties and his mech suit, whenever he's fighting, constantly plays his one-hit wonder. That absolutely rules. Like, I, that, that's super cool and plays into, like, an interesting part of, like, Tony Stark this, that's not always, like, best implemented, which is, like, his fucking vanity. So, like, this does a good job of that, and it, it's, like, clearly playing on other, like, characters. Like, the action seems kind of cool, the powers are interesting, but, like, it it really is just the structure and the story elements of it that just kind of fall flat. How far did you make it in, anyway? Um, three or four episodes in. So it may improve later, but I, it's just like, it like, was a bad first episode, got better, and then it just kind of clumsily made its way to, to the point where I was. It's just like, it's not bad, but it's also like not good enough that I want to keep up with it. So it's just boring? Yeah, I think ultimately it comes out boring. Dang, that's that's the worst thing a thing can be, I think. Yeah, it's it's kind of a shame. And then uh you watch, you finished it. I can't believe it. You finished Sagrada Reset. So tell me how Sagrada Reset it ends. All right. So Sagrada Reset is <sighs> Sagrada Reset is a show with some really good ideas behind it, but <laughs> it it's just it it has some of the most horrendous pacing and scene direction I've ever seen. And it makes me really frustrated when like it spends a lot of time talking about thought experiments and for whatever reason, these thought experiments wind up relevant to the plot, and it makes me so angry that they bring those back. But when the actual powers and ability usage actually come together, it's really cool and interesting to see all these powers and shit play out and these mind games that people have to play with them. It's uh, it's a frustrating show because it could <laughs> it could be good, but it's not. Yeah, I felt that way at the point where I dropped it where it's like it has like movements towards a good show and it's just like consistently like hurting itself through its other narrative devices. So we, at like, halfway through, we had kind of just sort of stumbled into the main conflict, and how does that resolve? <laughs> Alright, well, after, um, reviving Soma from the dead, the main character tries to find a way to get her out of Sagrada because she do he doesn't want her to become the next witch. Right, because she has to, she has to like stay there in order to like keep track of all the powers or something like that, or like keep the whole thing moving. Specifically, she can see the future, and she would be locked in a room to prevent other people from seeing the future, so she could see the future and basically get people to manage any problems that occur within the town. Mm -hmm. But what happens is he he goes to this dream world and. <laughs> This character has a power to take other people into her dream, and she sort of basically disassociated herself from the real world, 
and just lives in this dream world and has cr- basically created a god to use her powers. And he mm-hmm. kind of has to, like, get her to reassociate with the real world. But also, there's another character who's trapped in, who lives in the dream world who writes something called The Script. And The Script is all of the events that will ever happen. Oh, okay, so this is just a written, this is basically, like, history, but, like, for the future. Yes. Cool. Yes. All right. And, <laughs> and it. And this includes the stuff done by uh by the resets. It keeps track of the resets, which is why this is Oh fuck. Okay. So it's the perfect way to keep track of the future. And you know how this plays out in the overall plot? It doesn't. Oh, uh, wait, what? It doesn't. You know what the script is used for? It's used for the main character to find out how abilities were born. Wait, what? Why would you use it for that over anything else? Uh, that's what it did. That's what they did. (laughs) So, other than that, he does, he realizes that, yes, he can use his experiments to, uh, to see if Soma will lose her powers if she she goes outside of Sagrada. He wanted to find out what happens if she goes back and then comes back in. Okay. And then he kind of stumped, but that's, basically the plot for the rest of the show is, Kay just sort of stumbles into a conspiracy to remove all abilities because one guy is a big pissy baby and is like, no, abilities aren't cool. Humans are strong enough to survive without abilities. We don't need them. And he's a big pissy baby about it. Cool. But it turns out he has kind of a personal connection to it, but that has nothing to do with his reasons anyway. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. But uh, basically, he Kay just... Fumbles around, the guy succeeds with his plan, but through the use of some ridiculous bullshit, he manages to reset to before um, the the ability removing was gone, and then comes up with his own ridiculous plan to convince the try and convince the guy to not get rid of abilities. Except he's not really convincing the guy; he's convincing the guy's friend who basically locked up the villain's parents so that abilities could continue to be exist, because this guy's power is to permanently lock something. Anything he touches becomes locked, becomes frozen in time. That's a cool power, right? Right. So how does he waste it? Like, he uses this power to, like, he can use it to lock a door, and all the people inside are trapped inside that room forever. Unless he turns off his power, or can he turn off his power? He can unlock the door, and that, like, re-un- like, unfreezes the time in that room. Or whatever. And the main villain's power is to rewind time. He can rewind something's time, including his own time, which he uses to make his memories into Swiss cheese for some reason. I don't- Okay. I don't know why he does this, he just does it, but- Basically, he convinces the, uh, the dorm, the, uh, the assistant that abilities are worth keeping around, and the main villain is just frustrated, and he loses, except, uh, there's a love triangle going on in the background, and that's what the final episode focuses on. Between, (laughs) between Soma and, um, the emotionless girl, uh, what was her name? Uh, Haruki, that's it, yeah. There's a love triangle between Kei, Haruki, and Soma that's been sort of going on in the background for the entire second half of the show, and the last episode is about resolving that 
including bringing back another stupid thought experiment from earlier in the show. Is this the cyborg one? No, the Swamp Man is also applied in this point. It's really dumb. Wait, the Swamp Man? Did you get to the part with the, where they talked about the Swamp Man? I don't think I saw Swamp Man. Okay, so <laughs> basically there's a thought experiment of, well, what if... What if after a person dies, a person who looked exactly like them and had their memories and were, like, basically them came about- Oh, is that the original? Yes. Yes. That thought experiment came up later in the show, in the second half, and it made me scream when they did it. (laughs) Cool. It's- It's so frustrating because it's close to being a good show, but the scene direction and the pacing just fucking ruins it. Yeah, like, even when I was watching, it's like, oh, yeah, there's, like, a potential here. And it's just, like, it felt like the person writing it had no idea where to take all these different things. I mean, I can say that they do have some of an idea of where to take it. It it turned out being pretty interesting. They just don't have the ability to, like, sell you on that. Like, they, they can't, like, uh, deliver. I... Uh... It's just that there's so much talking. There's so much talking about nothing. And it's <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah, it seems like a show with like potential... And I, I thought it was there from even the beginning. It was like, it's just like the direction and probably the original like novel was pretty stilted in the way that they talk. Because that's like a big issue is they talk a lot and none of it is like interesting that's definitely the big part like it's not like a niso eisen show like katana Gatari, where the talking is actually really interesting and fun and playful it's everybody just sounds like completely deadpan right and like the thing about like a niso eisen thing is like sort of all of the words eventually come back to mean something and it seems like sagrada reset like sets a lot of stuff off and then sort of like clumsily st- like uh trips into like making it relevant it it definitely does that like with the swamp man thing and another thing where like in the in the first half of the show the witch asks haruki can you love k even if he's just a stone that just thinks and that comes back too and that made me <laughs> yell i hate the cool. show I hate the show. (laughs) It's it's so close to being good. It's it's just why not? It's just not. It's just so not. It's just one of the most bizarre experiences I've ever had watching a show, and yet I watched it to the end because I was just so curious as to where it's going. And it turns out it's going somewhere very stupid. God bless. God bless Sagrada Reset. For being <sighs> stupid in these trying times. <laughs> what? It's so ponderous. Please watch it if you like a show being ponderous and plotting. If you like people talking about things but not coming to any conclusions when it comes to talking about smart guy stuff, watch Sagrada Reset. <laughs> please. Please, someone else. If you like it when people are like, have you ever thought about Blink, and then they don't follow up with anything, oh, no. watch Sagrada Reset. No, they follow up with it, it just takes several episodes, and it makes you mad because you thought it it's was just, just a one-off thing. <laughs> cool. 
And then uh, the last show in this break is uh, Fastest Fingers First, which I, I, I initially found pretty charming because it is about sort of like a weird subject. And like, I feel like Quiz Bowl is one of those things that does pop up a lot in media, but like, it's not really a thing anymore. And it's sort of like, kind of like a, a weird curiosity at this point. And so like, Fastest Finger First has charm in that it, it focuses on that. It focuses on the technique and, you know, like, how to how to be good at, like, Quiz Bowl and this quiz sort of thing. And it has a quirk that I know is, like, a little, um, is a little divisive with, with people who watch the show, which is the, the main female character is, um, very obviously inexperienced. Like, I think it's, like, an, it, it's an idol who's doing their first voice acting gig. So, like, it, it emotes a little too... It, like, it doesn't emote enough a lot of the times. And you can tell it's sort of, like, just kind of line reading instead of being able to make it as if you're actually speaking. So, like, it's a little amateurish, but I think it works in some ways because, you know, it's a, it's, you know, it's a teen character. These teens are supposed to sort of be, like, kind of awkward, a little off. But, like, it, with it juxtaposed against everyone else being, like, a professional VA, it's a little, like standout but it's not a deal breaker i think it's fine um the problem is that when it's doing its quiz bowl stuff and really getting into the dynamics of the characters and the the hobby that they've picked it's it's really good but it 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 really quickly like devolves into sort of like filler-esque episodes that are still about like quiz bowl but like don't actually focus on the character development part and don't like really play into the aspects that I found most interesting about it, which is the actual, like, competitive nature of it, and the way that these characters interact with each other when it comes down to it. So, like, it's not a bad show. It's just one that I feel like meanders a bit too much to be really good. Like, I hit a point where I think I stopped at, like, episode six, and half of the episodes had felt sort of, like, filler in comparison to sort of, like, the, the actual, like, you know, it's, it, it is very much like a tournament arc sort of sports thing. Whereas it sets up sort of like, oh, here's the hip young school full of, like, amateurs who's gonna, you know, make it big in Quiz Bowl. It felt like it, it got a lot away from that, including an episode where it's like, in order to pay for all the, um, like, buzzers and stuff that you need to run this club, uh, some of them work at a maid cafe in Akihabara. And it's just like this weird... It's, like, out of nowhere, and it doesn't really amount to anything, so it's just, like, it it feels like a lot of wasted space on Fastest Fingers first. But, um, I guess one thing that's, like, sort of charming is, um, they, they explicitly bring up the concept of absolute territory. Like, at one point, it's like, oh, you know, this kid's very smart at books, book learning, but he knows nothing about, like, culture. Or, you know, things like that. And so, like, he he learns one day what absolute territory is, which is, I guess, for the uninformed, the the amount of skin in between a girl's skirt and her, like, um, thigh-high um, socks. And so it's it's sort of like this, it's, it's like this weird part of, like, Moe culture to be, um, like, aroused or, like, interested in this particular piece of skin showing. And, like, it comes up, like, three or four times in episodes after that of, like, oh, well, this happens to be a quiz bowl question. 
about absolute territory and like, oh, someone's into absolute territory and they get called out on it. It's just such a weird, um, like, focal point to have in a series <laughs> that's like, it's charming in its clumsiness, but like, yeah, Fastest Fingers First just felt like it, it didn't quite know how it wanted to pace itself. And so like a lot of it just felt kind of empty. That whole scene just sounds extremely surreal. It 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 it, it was surreal. It's uh it's I I feel like if like the episodes were rearranged or if you ignored sort of the more like empty kinds of episodes then you could you could find a lot more enjoyment out of it. It's not like really bad or anything. It was just like at some point it felt like watching it the way I was it was kind of wasting my time. And that's like the the worst thing I could imagine for a show to do. And af- so after this, we have sort of our shows that we've been watching and are carrying over, and we're just going to do a, uh, a status check on it. So first up, Zane, uh, tell me what it's like uh, in Fate Apocrypha right now. So Fate Apocrypha has moved on to its, uh, its second half. The, the first episode of the second half was, uh, was last week, and it's definitely shaken a lot of things up, uh, but I... I think the show's pretty alright. It does a lot of... It's been more servant-focused than the old Fate Stay Night anime, which is nice, because the servants are a lot more interesting as people, especially since, like, a lot of them have past relationships with each other, like Atlante, Achilles, and um, his teacher Chiron are all there, and they all sort of know each other, and it's kind of interesting to have these characters that all know each other and sort of expected each other that are in this fight to determine who gets their wish granted. Right, and like, they're all like, a lot of them are like historical characters that retain some knowledge of who they were, right? Like... Yeah, they're they're given not... Like, it, there's, it's supposed to be like, they have all the knowledge that they had at they die, that when they died, but also enough knowledge that they can survive in the modern world. Like, uh, you, like, they can know how to drive a car if they want. Okay, so it doesn't focus on, like, the anachronistics of, like, oh, this saber who's, um, Arthur Pendragon doesn't know how to drive or doesn't know what a computer is. No. They can kind of skip that part. Yeah, that doesn't happen even in the original, but, uh... Right, but I'm just saying that that's, yeah, like, the idea. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's good. basically. But, um, I, I think this show has some interesting character dynamics, and the, the place where the show is going is different. It's It's had some twists and turns, but I think one of the problems is that it's Despite what the ending seems like it's going to be, the show has been an ensemble cast bit, where, though there are, like, four or five central characters, and the problem is that two of those characters, and the two that have had a lot of screen time, aren't very interesting. Specifically, uh, the homunculus Sieg, he is not exactly a very interesting character. Jean sort of is, but the other three main characters, uh, Astolfo, who a lot of people are very familiar with, but also uh, Mordred and her master Sisigo. They're, they're a lot more interesting and fun and play off of each other uh, pretty well, Mordred and Sisigo specifically. And Estolfo is just a big goofball in this war full of very serious characters, and he brings a lot of lightheartedness wherever he goes. The, the animation team definitely is making him feel very vibrant. It's, mm-hmm. yeah. 
so is it like focus on one so i know this is like based on the this is like a holy grail war where it's two sides fighting over the holy grail to get their wish granted yeah is it like is it splitting time between both armies or is it mostly like you get one side's perspective until they meet on the battlefield kind of thing no it's everybody gets uh, the this time at once like okay like some episodes will focus on these specific characters some episodes will be focusing on these specific characters but it's all sort of all ongoing and it manages to get like some of the uh some of the masters on the eagd millennia side which is still a ridiculous name uh they get some sympathetic moments and like it's been a really interesting contrast to to just get all these different perspectives and I feel the show has some pretty interesting story beats and the battles have been pretty, you know, nice to watch so far. But it just feels like it's finally now starting to like hit its stride. Like it's the the main plot seems to be going somewhere, the sort of main villain has been unveiled. It seems like it's going to be pretty interesting going forward in this in the second half of this show, especially now that Sieg has somebody along with him to uh to balance out his raw seriousness and okay and so to like um does it feel like this first half was all set up no it okay yeah like that's, things... i wasn't sure if that's what i was getting from no, your explanation no, but I, okay yeah i didn't explain that well no no stuff has happened throughout the whole half arc it just feels like the conflict has reached a turning point the main villain okay like it's it's reached a turning point in episode 12 where the main villain revealed himself, where, uh, like, Darnick is a survivor of the previous Holy Grail War, and he's been- and he's also been plotting this- this scheme for 60 years to get the whole- the Greater Grail and accomplish his wish, and it feels a bit, I guess, eerier, because it's a servant instead of a mage. Like, he's mm-hmm. been around for 60 years, and that shouldn't happen, because he's just a familiar. Okay. But yeah, I I feel like I've enjoyed the show thus far. It it could have been better, but I'm glad it wasn't worse and I'm I'm hopeful about its second half. All right, cool. So I'm also on episode 13 of a series that's continuing on and that's Welcome to the Ballroom and so Welcome to the Ballroom, a very um sports series like it it's all about sort of like you know these these uh kind of lead-ups to sort of, like, tournaments and sort of, like, bigger sort of action moments. But, so Welcome to the Ballroom just happens to be about sort of, like, a a very non-traditional sport. It's uh, ballroom dancing. And sort of all the forms that come with that. It's not just the waltz, you know, it's it's the, uh, it's like the 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 swing step. It's it's all these different things, like the tango and all these different styles that end up playing into ballroom dancing. So Welcome to the Ballroom focuses on uh, a boy named Tatara who sort of, like, doesn't really have anything he wants to do, sort of like clubs or otherwise, and sort of like, you know, in kind of a, a, a chance encounter, stumbles into this, uh, stumbles into this dance hall where he can get taught by a professional dancer named uh, Sengoku Kaname, who's just like, He's like a world-renowned dancer. He's really cool. And Tatara, while he doesn't have any experience early on, what he is really good at is he's sort of good at um, like reading the movements of other people and being able to reenact them. So he can he can follow along really well, but 
when asked to do his, you know, his own stuff, he kind of stumbles. So this this first half has been a lot about sort of like Tatara coming to terms with the fact that like his his ability to copy isn't going to get him everywhere because like it might, you know, make him look all right to start, but like when it comes to actual like tournaments and stuff and these dance competitions, they're like full day affairs, so it's going to come down to his stamina, it's going to be able to come down to his uh, ability to, like, improvise and sort of, like, make, you know, make things easier on himself. So he may have, like, the fundamentals down by the way he can copy others, but the actual, like, specifics, the nitty-gritty that comes to it is what makes it very um, difficult for him. And so from episodes 1 to 11, we sort of get that. We sort of get this conflict between two side characters named... uh Gaju and Mako, who are a brother and sister pair who do ballroom dancing and sort of the conflicts they have because they're, they're, they're such different people. And Tatara's, um, hope to make like Mako a more confident dancer because they pair up for, uh, a, a tournament. And like all the characters I think are, are pretty good. Like it's, it's a diverse cast of sort of like your, your sports tropes. From like the plucky newcomer to the experienced sort of like uh you know guy who's kind of impressed by by the plucky newcomer. One thing I have an issue with though when it comes to these characters is there's a real like problem with gender in this series. Like it feels very like mean spirited almost to its female characters in the first half, where like there's a lot of like bullying uh Mako for having small breasts and not being like a very attractive person. And it plays into it like a joke later where she pads her bra with like four or five um pads during a dance and they accidentally all slip out and just ruin the entire dance for everyone. Which is like you know, it doesn't make that any less kind of weird, but it's like a it's like an it's a funny ending to that. And like it's definitely like plays with the sexuality of its characters a lot like um the like the i guess the main female character shizuku has a point where kind of out of nowhere her dress is pulled at and sort of like falls off and it's very supposed to be like titillating and like other characters point out how hot she is at 15 and there are like other 15 year olds i guess but it's just like a weird there's this weird like almost maybe misogynist vibe coming from the male characters and the way the male characters treat the female characters and they treat the male characters differently. And it's just like, that's, it's so strange for um, a show based on a sport so much about the way that the, the male and female parts of the, the groups in ballroom dancing are supposed to complement each other, which does get, um, that does get changed later on. Tatara learning that even as the lead in a dance, the importance that he carries is being able to like make his, the the female partner look better. Like the female partner is the focal point, whereas the the male partner in ballroom dancing is sort of the the technique. And so there's the, it like it starts to build up this better like camaraderie between its male and female characters, but it starts out really strongly like weird. And it seems like with this, this new character they've introduced in the second half, um, Chinatsu, Chinatsu is a very dominant female character and sort of like 
it seems like she's a much better leader in ballroom dancing than she is like a partner. So there's there's a kind of a conflicting dynamic between her and Tatara as dance partners. But like Chinatsu is also sort of like people tell me that Chinatsu is sort of like the character that really makes Welcome to the Ballroom a good series. Like it's this this build up to getting like this this main partner that Tatara has that that really makes it good. And Chinatsu just isn't selling me on it yet. Maybe because she's just kind of like I mean, I get it. She's like she's sort of the like character who used to be really into this sport and sort of like dropped out for personal reasons and is kind of being dragged back in and trying to re-understand uh her love of the whole thing. But like she's just in the way that she is like standoffish is very like just unappealing as a character. But like even in the last couple, you know, in the couple episodes that she's been in, she's making strides toward towards being more like honest with herself, which I think is the maybe the most infuriating part of those sorts of characters is they can't be honest with themselves about the things that they love, even if they're forced to remove themselves from this activity for whatever reason. So I think maybe going forward, Chinatsu will be better and like the the tone of the show will be better where it's not quite as like mean spirited and it, it, it start it stops like being so heavily into the sexual relation. Like I get that like ballroom dancing is sort of like kind of an inherently sexy thing, but it doesn't need to be played up as much as it is. So I'm hoping going forward, like I, it, it's got all these problems, but like, even so when it gets to the action, I get kind of choked up. Like there's like, there's a real raw emotion to the way that they dance. That seems really good. And like, even the dances are a little off because like they, they dance to background music and the background music isn't, um, um, it's not diegetic. So they'll be so they'll like be dancing a waltz to a background song that doesn't fit the waltz or anything. And in the second half they've started moving towards more of like making sure the background music fits the actual dance they're doing and the movements fit the music, which like is really important when it comes to this, you know, a very musically based sport. Like it would be weird if in like I don't know, Your Line April or Kaon, when they do a performance, if it was playing like music that they weren't doing in the background and this is what that show this show keeps doing in the first half so again like i get caught up in some of the emotions of it and i'm just hoping that this second half really executes better than its its front half has been because despite all these issues i do like the characters i like the concept and like when they when they go all in on sort of like the dance choreography and everything it like i think it really hits strong I need it to hit a little harder going forward to really enjoy it. It sounds like it's it's been steadily improving as it's been going along. Yeah, for sure. It's it's definitely like it starts off on like a really weird foot and slowly gets better because like even with its like kind of weird misogyny, it has a moment where like the girls who are dealing with it sort of like confront it and I think that's really important is that like it's not just creating these female characters to basically go like uh women like they they have their own personality and they're willing to fight back against it when these sorts of things go too far. So it is improving and I hope it continues on that path. And speaking of things improving. Let's talk about the Yu-Gi-Oh Vrains situation cuz uh Zane, you binge watched all of this uh, basically just to catch up <laughs> for right now. 
I I did binge watch the first 19 episodes. 20 episodes. I binge watched 20 episodes of this show because... And we're on 21, so yep. like, wow. Yep, I don't know why I did it, but it was a fun ride. Uh, so... <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh! Reigns is like way getting into its plot now. So, like, it, it had just kind of started and, like, it seemed like it was a very, um... It seemed like it was gonna be a very, like, open and close sort of thing early on with the plot where it's like, oh, he's already fighting, like, the final villain in, like, episode 10. So, like, where do they go from here? But it it is really developed in a way that is, like, perfectly, like, nuts for Yu-Gi-Oh! But also just, like, I think it's actually handling its dramatic elements well. Yeah, I I do too. It it feels like the characters themselves take it seriously, which helps it which helps me believe their drama, even if the premise of the drama is completely ridiculous. Yeah, and Yu-Gi-Oh's always been pretty good about that. So like early on we kind of learn about Playmaker, and Playmaker is this like hacker duelist who is fighting against this like um this illuminati group called the knights of hanoi and you know they're doing this whole they're they're trying to get access to this cyverse which is basically where all the data is hidden in um in vrains which is the the vr arena where all the duelists can fight and they they also have the business that they're working for as that you know owns Vrains, which is SOL Technologies, and they are also searching the Cyverse because the Cyverse is where all the data exists. They can't make more data without the Cyverse, so they're also vying for it. We need more RAM for our supercomputer. <laughs> oh, they need to tighten up the graphics. Um, so <laughs> we end up with Playmaker, who ends up stumbling on the the rogue AI that has. The, the information on the location of the cybers hidden in it, who is named, who is like a, is AI type Cygnus, but they refer to him as I, because they're very creative and they just named him AI. So he stumbles into I and sort of like, now both SOL Technologies and the Knights of Hanoi are really going after um, Playmaker because he has access to this information that they really need. But Playmaker really just Playmaker has his own agenda. He doesn't even care about whatever their argument is. He is trying to figure out what happened in his childhood, which we learn his backstory in this in this 13 episode bit. And like, wow, yeah, it's like it's, really going hard in a way that like Yu-Gi-Oh has never really done. It it's fucked up because it's 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 basically like a child soldier program. Yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, you, Yusaku's backstory makes me think of Raiden from Metal Gear Solid. Right, so Playmaker, also known as Yusaku, and his, his thing is that, like, as a child, he was kidnapped by, uh, we believe, the Knights of Hanoi. And so are a bunch of other children in order to create sort of, like, fighting machines for them. And so... Well, we don't, we don't actually know yet. The, it, it seems that way, but yeah, we don't really know the purpose behind it or anything. But, like, he, he was forced to duel, and, like, if he lost to this computer, he wouldn't get fed, and he'd have to keep dueling in order to get food. And so, like, he's got some pretty serious PTSD from it, like, understandably. And this ties into the thing we know about his friend who runs the hot dog uh, truck. That guy's brother um, was also in it and has become basically, like, uh, 
he he's gotten to the point where yeah he can't like function in society and like he just you know he he's gotten so racked with sort of the the trauma from this and so uh what playmaker what yusaku wants to do is he wants to figure out what that was why it happened and get his revenge on the people that so thoroughly ruined his and this uh friend's life yeah you yusaku wants some closure and he also wants to find his friend who gave him words of encouragement when he was going through this surreal experience in his life. Right, who might be another of the the children who was abducted. Like we don't we don't know that either. But someone like helped him keep going and it plays into his um his quirk that he always finds three things to explain why he does things because this friend is always like, "Hey, you know, think of three things that are going to help you get through this horrible experience." And so that's just become like a quirk of his because it's the only thing he could do to keep himself sane. And so like within this story we have the point where um the the female character um Owie is like against her brother's wishes is like moonlighting as sort of like a dueling idol. A charisma duelist as they call it. Right, the charisma well uh the, the charisma duelists are the people that they watch in VR, but she's like specifically based around like an idol. Yeah. And she has her idol deck. And so like she has this whole thing where she, while she's in AI, gets, like, corrupted by the Knights of Hanoi to try and get um, I out of uh, Yusaku. And so that plays into this, this bigger plot where she ends up getting a real-life virus, basically. That, uh, well, her virtual reality self gets a virus that makes it so she can't log out. So basically, she's stuck in a coma in, in Vrain's. And so Yusaku has this big duel against the leader of the Knights of Hanoi, Revolver, where sort of like the, uh, some of the information that we've talked about gets released and sort of like we, we learned, we come to understand that sort of like everything's not as simple as it may appear initially. Yeah. And we, we have more plot where like now Yusaku gets information from this mercenary duelist uh, named Ghost Girl who gives him sort of like a backdoor entryway into SOL Technologies database, where apparently information about the, the program he was involved in where he was abducted is held. The Hanoi Project, which, he's, which is why he's after the Knights of Hanoi in the first place, because he thinks he has some, they have some connection to that project. Right. And so he hacks his way in, and him and Owie, after breaking out... So, so Owie is like under house arrest because he broke her brother's rules and just really like plays into how awful of a character Zizen is. Like Zizen is a terrible brother to Aoi <laughs> and like continues to justify it in like, oh, I'm protecting her. I'm taking care of her because I'm the breadwinner after our parents died and I had to hack for the Yakuza to help us survive. <laughs> but that's, really he's just like, <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say, that that's completely the a thing that happens in the show, but also uh, Zizen is also projecting onto Yusaku hard, right? Because it's like, oh, you know, Yusaku, you're doing the same thing as I did. You're you're doing whatever you can for the benefit of others, and uh, Yusaku's like, uh, don't talk for me. Like, I think that's one really good thing is like Zizen is very much sort of like like well intentioned but bad is his character, and so he constantly like tries to project his thoughts onto Yusaku. And Yusaku's constantly like, that's not me, dude. Like, don't speak for me. I am my own person. And so is your sister, who you have locked up in your fucking house. Like, I think it's doing a good job of, like, 
creating flawed characters that it doesn't always agree with. Because that's a sort of thing that, like, it ran it, like, Yu-Gi-Oh! has run into trouble with before, where it's like, oh, well, this person's valid because they, they tried to do a good thing, but it was bad. And I feel like it, it's trying a little harder to, like, paint Zizen as, like, he needs to change because he's clearly, like, fucked up. He had, I was gonna say, he has an obsession with protecting his sister. Right, and it plays into his weird deck. His weird, awful Tendangle deck. I hate the word Tendangle, <laughs> and I hate that it's an archetype in Yu-Gi-Oh! <laughs> I love that I get to hear someone say Tindangle a whole lot, and also that it's based <laughs> off of the Hound of Tindalos, which is a fucked up theme for a businessman to have for his deck. Yeah, it's it's all kinds of fucked up. But so, Yusaku breaks into SOL Technologies, he fights off some AI, Aoi's there, she fights off an AI too, it's really cool. Because the AI are basically um, based around sort of like control decks where it's like, oh, Yusaku's not going to have, you know, a hand anymore, I'm going to make him discard all his cards. And with like Aoi's, it's like, oh, well, you're not going to be able to attack or do effect damage because it'll just re- uh, reflect back on you. And it's like, it, they, it's cool strategies, and like, that's always like a great thing about Yu-Gi-Oh! It's like, with the anime, all of the strategies just get to work. <laughs> that's true. Unlike in real Yu-Gi-Oh! Where, where you fuck up and you don't draw the right card and you lose. And like, Yusaku's like, ability where he pulls a new card out of the data storm, I think is like, a really good way to handle the sort of like, heart of the cards thing for this series, because not only does it play into sort of the, the story of the whole thing, but like, it also means that he's constantly getting new monsters, which is a real benefit because definitely like earlier on and certainly like in like Zexel, it had an issue where it's like, it always comes down to the same card every time. Like all the strategy just comes down to a single card and like Vrain's constantly having him pull new Link monsters is really cool because then you get to see that synergy work together. You get to see like new cards and new strategies and stuff as the writers kind of like think of them. It feels like common rider to me where every week, well, maybe not every week, but a lot of the times the character gets a new power up and shows it off and he literally pulls it out of thin air. And it, it's pretty interesting to me. Yeah, it's, it's good. I, I think this is like maybe the best implementation of that uh, just because it's like, Oh yeah, well, he's like he uses like classic deck. So, you know, he's still got his cards in real life, but he's pulling these ones from the data and they sort of like live within his deck when he's in VR. It's a it's a cool little thing. I was going to say I remember one of the episodes where he digitize where he like creates a physical version of one of the cards he pulls from the data storm. Yeah, it's cool. And so he beats Zizen and sort of like tells him that his worldview is flawed and also that like Yusaku's like Yusaku's just like, I'm not a good person, I just want revenge, which is cool. Yusaku is a try-hard edgelord, and it's great, because then he gives this bit about, you could have just attacked me with your thing, why did you do that whole bullshit about turning those mo- returning my monsters to my hand? Because you and your sister deserve to be in the light. God. <laughs> right, it, God, it's so cool. Oh, they're awesome. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just like, everything he does is so cool. Um, and so he, he gets this information from SOL Technologies, and we learn a little bit more about the Hanoi Project. And most importantly, we learn that the, the head of it, um, a doctor, died five years ago. So they're kind of stuck at square one again, because that's the only like information they could decrypt. And it's, you know, for a guy that doesn't uh, exist anymore. 
And so, like... Or does he? Or does he? So, like, the... I was gonna say, we know that he does. He's just somehow also trapped in brains. Right, he's got that weird, like, iron lung thing VR going on. But, um, the one, like, the one, like, critique I have of it so far is that that ends in a recap episode. And, like, over the last 13 episodes, we've had two recaps. Yeah. And it definitely feels like, just in general, this Yu-Gi-Oh! has been the one most fraught with production issues. Because, like, it started, like, a month and a half late. And now we've had, like, two episodes to sort of, like, recap the series. And I get that, like, a lot more is happening than in your average Yu-Gi-Oh! series in this one. But it's, like, it's a little worrying that it happens within this, you know, these two 13-episode breaks. There have also been a lot of times in the show where the animation has just felt a little bit off. Yeah, and that that's kind of always happens with Yu-Gi-Oh! But, like, it, it definitely seems like Vrain seems to be the most, like, troubled production-wise in a while. So I, I hope that that kind of improves as they move forward. But, like, I, I think that the story is trying to be its most mature that it has been in the franchise, and it's, like, kind of working. Yeah, I, I think it works, too. I, I'm, I like the story. I, I like Yusaku as a protagonist. And he bounces well off of I, and I think I'm I'm curious to see where their journey is going to take him. Yeah, and I'm excited to see once he like gets over his edgelord phase and actually makes some goddamn friends. Because I like Aoi as a character, and Go, who we didn't really talk about because he kind of disappeared after his initial episode. But he's like kind of like a wrestler who's really into like kayfabe when he's dueling. Like he seems cool. <laughs> Um, and I want to see, because clearly they're going to be important. They're in the OP. So I want to see, like, once Yusaku kind of gets over himself and sort of has this this group of people that he can depend on, how, like, you know, the, the duels change. Because I, I like seeing different decks have to fight. And when you have multiple protagonists, that's a lot easier. That reminds me. I think one of my favorite parts about, like, how all the duels have gone is that it always feels like Yusaku wins by the skin of his teeth. Like, even though you know he's going to win because he's the protagonist, it always feels, like, really tense, and it's been really exciting to see what moves he pulls out to win. Right, and, like, it always feels new. Like, he doesn't just fall on the same stuff every time. Like, he's not pulling the same card to win. He's not always doing the exact same combo. He has all these different combos that work well with his setup. It's cool. Yeah, I like Link monsters. They seem like a neat addition to the game. Yeah, and the way it's just, like, completely destroyed the actual game in real life is also awesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, like, I'm really excited that it seems like more people I know are getting into Yu-Gi-Oh! because of this, because Yu-Gi-Oh! is really good. Oh, it's just so good right now. And I I'm really excited for how it develops, because it really is, it does seem like it's trying to go for a more mature story. And it's, like, kind of working for, like, a kid's show. Having just come from... Common Rider X-Aid, which also had a fairly mature story. I think it's definitely possible for kids' shows to have mature stories like that. Yeah, totally. I, and I'm excited to see where, where Vrains goes from here. And then the last one on our list is the, is the end of My Hero Academia Season 2. Yay. And so with these last 12 episodes, we get the, the hero killer art, right? And we get the, the final exams. Yeah, yeah. End of term exams. Right. Well, yeah. So, um, the Hero Killer one. Hmm. I like. I mean, I liked it. Is it really got to use the benefit of having its ensemble cast? And it, I think it's cool because, like, it it plays into sort of the um, internship stuff because, like, 
not only are the the teachers sort of fighting and helping out the younger students as they deal with it, but like when it comes to like when they're in the alleyway fighting the hero killer, it's just a bunch of students working together and sort of trying to complement each other in order to to overcome this this big villain. And I think it's just like leaving the big thing to the the kids to solve while the the bigger heroes go after the weird like nobus that are being developed is like a really nice contrast because it's sort of like the big conflict is still in the hands of these characters we're supposed to more relate to and be interested in but we still get like the cool adults fighting yeah it was definitely a really good fight between uh between our protagonists and stain and we also got some character development for uh for ida yeah ida gets a good like um hubris moment where like he he gets so caught up in this this revenge plot that he kind of loses focus and isn't able to like fight well so he you know he he gets really hurt in the battle and sort of like you know it's it's about sort of like the ability to open up about his frustrations and stuff later on yeah so yeah like ida has a good character moment you know todoroki kind of gets to develop on the way that his character has been moving since the the fight with uh, Deku. Yeah, it was nice. I'm, I'm glad Todoroki got to play a major part in this arc, and it shows, like, how far he's come in just a short amount of time. Yeah, I, I, I'm really starting to like Todoroki as a character just because he is sort of, like, probably the most complicated character. And he just, like, has a lot going for him that makes him really interesting to follow. Yeah, he's definitely one of my favorites because he's... He's definitely a good person. He's just having trouble figuring himself out. Right. And sort of like, it's it's a weird conflict because unlike, um... So Shigaraki is like, his his whole character is like how much he hates heroes and the, the bullshit they stand for. But like, I feel like Stain has a much, a much different stake in why he dislikes modern hero culture. Yeah. In that he's sort of like, uh, I, I, like... Instead of just being like, oh, I hate heroes, I want to kill them. It's like, he sees, like, this hypocrisy in the way that these, like, the heroes hold themselves and the way that, like, heroism is, like, gone corporate. So he's just, like, really frustrated with the state of heroism and wants to change that. He has such a distinct goal that separates him from, like, the League of Villains and stuff that makes him an interesting one to follow. And I assume he's going to come back later. Like, he didn't die or anything in his fight. So I assume that we're going to see more of him. And that could be, like, kind of interesting. I think there's, like, a there's a cool... Because he's not, like, entirely evil. He's just, like, going about things in an evil way. I'm going to say that it's very deliberate that you, that you pointed out that there's such a stark difference between Shigaraki and Stain. And that's definitely touched upon in the last episode of the show. Yeah, because then, like... So, uh, not not to skip too much, but Shigaraki shows up and sort of, like, talks to Deku, like, personally, and sort of tries to get this idea of, you know, why he does the heroism thing, and sort of, like, figure out what he's missing. (laughs) Yeah, I'm definitely gonna say that Shigaraki, like, continues to develop. Like, he's deliberately a counterpart to Deku, in that they're both growing as people, which is sort of weird to say. Like, Deku's growing as a hero, and Shigaraki's growing as a villain. And, like... (laughs) Shigaraki's just, like, so pissed that Stain gets popular <laughs> instead of him. Like, Stain suddenly has, like, a whole bunch of, like, like hot topic teas made about him. And so, like, there are kids that are, like, getting his, like, um, eyewear. And it's like, 
oh, we totally can't do this. We're going to be like villains, but it's so cool. Stain's so cool. Yeah. That's the cool thing where you're just like, oh, I can't believe it. Fucking Stain is popular and not me. Uh. Yeah, Shigaraki is a total man child. And <laughs> what, seeing him, what a baby. <laughs> yeah, and seeing him grow from that has been pretty interesting. Yeah, and then we have the we have the the finals, which yeah. they're they're kind of it's kind of neat. It's kind of sad that some of them are just kind of like glossed over. <laughs> like it's just like uh, who is it? It's uh, Eijiro and Koji. No, it's not Koji. Uh, Eijiro and um, who's the other? Who's the other big muscle guy? Um, Kirishima. That's like a really sad fight <laughs> because it's just like um, these two guys who are just like really big and buff. And, um, and so they're, like, trying to punch through it, and then they just lose because they waste all their energy. I will say that, like, a lot of the, uh, the fights were expanded upon in the anime adaptation, so, like, like, I oh, think- Oh, really? Yeah, like, this was only, like, a couple of panels and such, but this got a lot more development in this. It's still just kind of sad that it's like, oh, we dedicated, like, part of an episode to you guys because you failed? <laughs> like, oh. But then, yeah. like, basically, but then, like, mostly everyone else succeeds, and, like, in kinda cool ways. Yeah, like, that's- Like, like Froppy's whole thing is, like, really cool, where they're, like, hiding the, uh, they're hiding the handcuffs, and, like, using the fact that this, this hero that they have to face against is, like, distracted because he thinks that they are, uh, they're caught in his trap to, uh, to win is, like, pretty cool. Yeah, I like a lot of the solutions they come up with. Yeah, even when it comes down to sort of like these contrasting characters, like when they do, um, they do Bakugo and Deku, like, you know, they, they, they have these contrasting ideals and like Bakugo just fucking hates the idea that he's working with Deku and would ever have to like, you know, deal with Deku in like a, a work way. But they get over their differences when All Might just starts trashing them in yeah. a way that like shows that they at least can handle this uneasy alliance. Yeah, I I like that. Uh, I think one thing it's worth mentioning that they changed from the manga is that in the manga, all of these exams were happening at the same time. Mm, and they, it's definitely not happening in this. Like, they're watching each other do these. Yeah, like, one of the things that happens in the manga is that Deku's exam finishes early before everybody else's, and he gets to watch the other people while he's recovering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here it's just like this series of battles. Yeah, which it seems like that doesn't change too much. It's basically just they get to comment on each other's work. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a fun old time. I I, I do enjoy it. Like I think I think the characters are charming and everything. And then we have the final episode where sort of like, <laughs> I guess like, uh, oh, I forgot his name again. The villain, Shigaraki. Yeah, he discovers sort of like his reason to be a villain. Like he's just kind of being a villain to be shitty, and then he's like. So, uh, why did Stain get popular and not me? Why are you cool? And then it's like, oh, well, it's because I have a reason to keep fighting. I want to be like All Might. And Stain had a reason to fight because he wanted to show the hypocrisy of modern day heroism. And so he's like, oh, well, I got a perfect idea then. I've got to just find a purpose. And my purpose is to kill All Might. Ah! Like, it's just so... (laughs) I mean, it's a little bit more complex than that, but that's what it boils down to. It boils down to basically like, oh, I'm going to just hate All Might. That's going to be my goal. And then everyone will think I'm cool. <laughs> it's like, like he, he definitely comes off as still like villainous because he's like meeting up with all these like new villains that I know people seem to like a lot, especially that girl. But like, he is just like the, like, <laughs> he's sort of the lamest while being the most threatening. 
That's that's definitely him. Because he's like, I hate this. <laughs> it's a but no, I I I've been enjoying my Hero Academia a lot. It's it's like a lot of fun, just like good classic sort of shonen stuff. Yeah, it's definitely some nice, well done shonen, and I'm glad to see it animated all really nice and well. Yeah, and it's nice that like Deku has gotten to the point where he can at least sort of control his powers. Yeah, because like I- it's it's really changed the development of his character and how he fights instead of just like, well, in order to do this, I'm going to have to break a bone in my body. Yes, I'm very glad that he that we finally got into the part where he doesn't have to destroy himself to fight. <laughs> right, I broke my fingers five times to fight this guy. I broke my fingers five times twice to fight this guy. <laughs> this is cool. But yeah, no, I I really enjoyed my Hero Academia, and like a season three sounds pretty good, but it's nice that like. There's like a decent break between us, so there'll be plenty of time to like, like tighten it up as they go forward and stuff, so we don't have to worry about like a, a fatigue of the series. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that people might get emotionally exhausted if they if it were just to continue right from here. Because it seems like it's going to be a lot more of that, and it's just like it's a lot sometimes. Yeah, in a good way. In a good way. Yeah, I know. I like yeah. knowing what's coming up. I'm excited for people to to be able to enjoy that content along with me. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's been fun. Really enjoying it. Yeah. And wow, that's all the anime we watched. There's a lot. Yeah. But I think, like, there's a lot of good stuff in it, too. Like, even the stuff that's, like, you know, didn't always stick the landing. Like, we got three really good original series out of it. You know, there there's other stuff that's just, like, seems to be developing well. And there are, like, even bad shows we could have fun watching. Those are some of the best you can have, though. Right, like, sometimes it's good just to have, like, a really bad show that's still fun to watch instead of just, like, a bad show that sucks. Because, like, Vatican Mirror Examiner, if nothing else, is, like, fun to watch because it's not so dire all the time. Like, it's clearly floundering trying to make a, a, you know, content and making a mystery, but it flubs it in a way that is charming, but also bad, so. I'm I'm glad I finally got to see a a bad anime that fulfilled my needs of being ridiculously stupid in an entertaining way. And, like, it seems like we've got some pretty good shows going forward, Yu-Gi-Oh! Reigns, for sure. Yeah. And it seems like we're we're on the upward uh, arc for both Fate Apocrypha and Welcome to the Ballroom. Like, there's just a lot of good stuff happening right now, and, like, from the first episodes I've seen of the fall season so far, it's looking really good for this fall season. Yeah, same here. My My first episodes that I've watched so far have all been pretty dang good. Yeah, there's nothing that's been, like, explicitly bad or anything. Like, everything has been at least good, if not great, with a lot of these first episodes. Just like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm so glad when, when the anime is good. Same here. And before we go, um, we did get a couple of questions that we can answer for you, the fans. This first one comes from friend of the show, QB. Uh, thank you, QB, and points out that Basically, the entire internet was not aware of this show. It kind of got buried because it's released on sort of like a, a obscure Japanese streaming service, and it only recently got um, uploaded to YouTube uh, on a delay. And it's called "Do Your Absolute Best, Magical Girl Kurumi," which is a four-minute parody Magical Girl series that's like animated in Flash or looks very like cartoons animated in Flash, which is. <laughs> It is just like a magical girl parody thing, 
that's more from the perspective of these bystanders that accidentally keep getting stuck into this magical girl fight. And this magical girl, like, has a sniper rifle. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Yeah, so it's it's really easy to get what's going on in the series without watching it. I, I watched all five episodes so I would know what to fuck the talk about with this fan mail. And, like... Um, so, like, there's a part where they're fighting against food-based villains, and there's, like, a fish, uh, a pig, and, like, Nato as, like, villains, and they all fuse together, and so the the main character, Magical Girl, just, like, stabs them to death, <laughs> like, actually kills them <laughs> with, the, with the pointy end of her staff, and then another one where she uses a sniper rifle to shoot at one of the villains, like, it is... It is incomprehensible, but also fun in kind of the same way that, like, a TQ is fun. But, like, nice. it's, it's it's just one of those things where, like, we wouldn't know about it if it didn't break exclusivity and get put to YouTube. So, like, this is, like, a weird sort of, like, Japanese artifact of, like, parody TV being, um, being discovered in the wild. <laughs> like, it's always weird when shows that, like, would have no chance of localizing somehow find it into the hands of, like, an in- uh, like a, a, an American watching audience. A, a rare beast. Right. I love it. Thank God. Uh, then we have one from a uh, friend of the show, Onlaren, who asks, with shows like uh, Wararu Salesman New, um, Infinite T-Force, and Gotcha Man Crowds, uh, where do you think the trend of rebooting or updating older anime is going? And I was thinking about this, because uh, I get to see these ahead of time. And, like, it's certainly not to the same level as, say, like, American media likes to reboot or update sort of, like, older series or older franchises. Especially when it comes to, like, blockbusters, sort of Hollywood stuff. But I think with anime, like, the fact that the 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 craft of anime is always so evolving means that there's there's plenty of space to sort of, like, develop and, like, reapply sort of like these these older series to a newer audience like Osamatsu-san did it like almost disturbingly well with the the huge fan base it's gotten and stuff so like i think with rebooting and updating the only thing that stops it from like falling flat is like understanding why they're rebooting it and what the point of the original series was cuz like i think there's a lot to be done with a lot of older series like even I don't know, like, in the 90s, like, there's a lot of stuff and just, like, anime has changed so much that you could develop, like, a kind of a completely new show around it. Like, when um, Ushio and Tora came back, it was, like, it was still very classic, and in that way, it's, like, a nostalgic thing, but it has all of the, like, charm and, like, um, presence of modern anime, like, it's it's still really well-developed and really well-drawn and stuff, so... Like there's there's totally a space for that. Like the also the the Hunter Hunter um update in 2011, like takes sort of like what I hear is kind of like an iffy anime and like really turns it into something special that people just like really latched onto. I was gonna say, isn't Mahoin Guru Guru an updated thing too? Yeah, yeah. Um, Magical Circle Guru Guru is a um is a is an updated like old like Dragon Quest style Square Enix parody thing. So like there there's definitely there's definitely like a space for it. I think. Like, in, in all things, there's the the addition of time can only, like, change and help develop ideas, I think. Like, especially with, like, Gotcha Man crowds, where, like, Gotcha Man is sort of, like, you know, was, was a, like, a, a toku, a tokusatsu sort of thing. And, like, Gotcha Man crowds really turns it into sort of this, this, like, bigger critique on, like, 
you know, on culture and the way that like government is held in weird ways. Like you can always recontextualize something to make it appropriate for like modern audiences or make have it say something. So like I think that updating an anime is like fine within like, you know, a certain you know I feel like there's there's definitely a time element to it where it's like you like I don't know, like reboot something from like 2016 right now it just feels kind of weird but like with enough time like we can look at like the speed racer movie versus like the speed racer anime and that's like an update that i think is like really appropriate because it sort of like takes the frantic energy of speed racer and the absolute absurdity and just makes it like very early 2000s like like lots of flashing lights and just like absurd sort of like technical feats going along with it so, like, even even within the West, I think there's a space for that. It's just, like, recognizing, like, whether or not you have something to to add to it, I think. Like, even if it's just, this is going to look a lot better. I think just having something to add to it makes it, like, a worthwhile project, as long as that's not just the, the main focus of the industry. I was going to say, my, my opinions are pretty much the same. You can definitely reboot something, but it it definitely needs, like something more than just reanimating the thing. Like, if I remember right, the Ushio and Tora anime actually finished the manga because the manga wasn't finished by the time the old anime finished airing, so it was actually able to, you know, contribute something that the old stuff didn't have before, and that's pretty interesting. Right, or I think we talked about it last episode, like, the Blue Exorcist thing, where it's like, well, the anime was made when the manga was really young, so it came up with this anime-only ending, and it kind of sucked. So now that the manga has more space and they can do more story, they brought it back and it's sort of like, well, let's pretend that didn't happen and we'll start from the point where, you know, we left off with the manga material. Like, it's there's totally a space for it. And like, even if, you know, like the 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 mixed perception on Evangelion Rebuild is like, you know, so big. Like Evangelion Rebuild is an attempt by um uh Hideki Ano. Yeah. God, I can't believe I forgot that name. Hideki Ano to like make a series closer to what he wanted originally, and even if that seems to be failing again, he'll find another way to do it, you know? Like, I feel like updating and modernizing media is fine. Like, you're you're gonna find new ways to to look at the the thing you're doing. Like when um like even though it wasn't great, like um Yotterman Knights, where it sort of like recontextualizes the the original Yotterman where like now the the characters who are descendants of the villains are sort of like mistreated and sort of like live in the slums while these you know these people based around yotterman are um like living the high life in this guarded town like changing the focus to the villains is like an interesting thing to do so like there's totally space for it i think there's you just have to like i feel like there just has to be more of a reason behind it you know yeah just more than just we want to do this again right yeah, like it, you can you can find new reasons to want to do it. And then the last question also by QB asks uh <laughs> which distilled qualities of old or dated anime would you want to see a cuphead style throwback to? So like I was trying to think of things from old anime that just like don't happen anymore and would like fit in sort of like a throwback either like animation project or like game project. And I, like, one thing that I kind of miss is to go back to Speed Racer for a sec, the, like, 
the the style of reaction shot that they do, where it's just a still of someone making a weird face, and then it just like zooms in and out on it a lot, is something that I could be <laughs> is something that could be like integrated really well into basically anything. I'm sorry, but because we talked about it in this episode, I'm just imagining Kakegurui doing that. <laughs> oh my god, they make like one of those disgusting realistic faces and it zooms in and out on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, but yeah, like the the thing about old animation is like the the only Oh, you know what? No. I want an action game based around that scene from Fist of the North Star where they just shake the cell the animation cell to simulate punching. <laughs> Have you ever seen that? No. There was a there was a tweet going around on Fist of the North Star where at some point because Fist of the North Star was fucking cheap uh, as an anime, they have a point where um there's this there's this cell of um it's just an animation cell of Kinshiro like off of the background and it's it the, you can just see that they're shaking the animation so like the glare of the cell is on this fucking shot and he, they're just shaking it and it's like supposed to be him doing like his big punches and it, it keeps cutting back to this other guy who's getting punched a lot but Kenshiro is just a fucking still being shook it's i want a game that's just based around that where all of that is just that but like uh you are seeing a little bit of that in, like, Dragon Ball Fighters, Because, like, it has the thing where if you're charging an attack, the timer stops. Oh, yeah, that fucking rules. Like, that that rules and sort of, like, it's really paying fan service to its source material of, like, finding, like, the seminal shots and everything to, to, to do on framing for super moves. Like, I feel like there's a little bit of that in Dragon Ball Fighters, especially with the, the time-stopping thing. I was gonna say... The, the shaking the cell thing reminds me that uh, I just watched Garo Vanishing Line today, and there's a lot of shaky cam going on in the fight scenes. Cool. That's awesome. It's fucking ridiculous. But yeah, so there's just like, um, it's just a, one of those things where, uh, there, there are like, things that become charming again after enough time has passed. So like when um like uh when the new Precure series on Netflix does like the four kids style um the four kids style dubbing and stuff and localization like that's become charming instead of like a gross like misinterpretation of the source material and stuff and like you know there's a uh, so like you could bring back some of the like cheaper sort of things that old anime used to do Especially with things like Speed Racer, where it's just, like, cuts to reactions, and, like, you can tell that just animation is constantly reused to make something that I think is charming. But I don't know if, like, old anime style is something that works quite the same as, like, something like Cuphead does when it comes to, like, animation. Yeah. Because, like, because because it is a lot more just, like, limited animation is sort of the gimmick there. I... <laughs> One thing that I'm not sure if it could be brought back is gag dubs. Oh, man. Or, like, um, man, because, um, fuck, I feel like there was a gag dub. No, the last one was Duel Masters, probably. Rest in peace, Duel Masters. God, Duel Masters. And it's really unfortunate that, like, the the one um, example that everyone knows of, like, really isn't good on rewatch, and that's, um... 
ghost stories uh, yeah ghost stories like it's funny when you're like 12 and you're like an edgelord and then you go back and you realize like all of the jokes are just kind of like really sort of offensive (laughs) i really want to go back and watch the duel masters dub one day and see if that still holds up as being really fucking goofy yeah, like, I, I could imagine um, it is, just because, like, a lot of it is like, oh, well, I, like, they, they just fourth wall break constantly more than anything else. So, yeah, I, I could see it. It seems like a like a interesting thing. But, like, yeah, I just, I don't feel like maybe the aesthetics of old anime fit quite the same as, like, something like Cuphead does. I feel like Cuphead was more about the animation style specifically. Yeah, and we and I think anime just like doesn't quite have that, or like it's not in a way that is like inherently charming. Like when you go back to like old Gundam, and it's just like very clearly they're moving the animation cell just like straightforward. So there's no not a lot of animation to the actual movement and stuff. Like it doesn't have that same sort of charm in the way that like you know like a uh, like American animation does. I feel like if there's one thing that people could bring back from, like, old anime, it would be, like, the character designs specifically. That would be something oh, that people yeah, they, could bring back. Yeah, and you see that in, like, I guess, like, 100-foot robot golf kind of does that, right? Yeah. There's just a game that, like, really bases its style around old Gundam in terms of character designs. And so I think you could do that by, like, really going back to sort of the pointy chins... You know, the, 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 like, smaller eyes. Like, you could really develop something out of that if you wanted to redo it. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, just, like, the, the way that they shade would be different. You know, kind of, like, everything about it would have, like, a different weird polish to it that could be neat. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'd, I'd want to see something, like, animated, like a 90s-style thing with those sorts of character designs, but just in a modern context. Yeah, that could that that would be neat. I I'd be interested in that. And anyways, that's the show. We went a little long, but there was a lot of anime to talk about. A lot of it good. Yeah, I I'm I was happy to talk for as long as it did because I was really happy with a lot of anime. Same here. And so once again, where can people find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter at at Zane Zero X A I N Z E R O. I'm just tweeting about shit i like having a good time and i'm available on twitter at at chorpsaway c-h-o-r-p-s-a-w-a-y you can find the podcast at coco underscore disaster on twitter you can find us at coco disaster.com where you can find links to all of our material you can find our rss feed you can find us on uh you can find our itunes link our stitcher link our google play music link um you can leave us reviews on any of those they'd be much appreciated uh, you can also, at any point, uh, go there and you can find the text-only blog that uh, me and friend of the show QB run, which is uh, Vanilla Blessing on Tumblr, vanilla-blessing.tumblr.com, where it's it's pretty infrequent at this point, but it's sort of like whenever we have dumping grounds for thoughts that maybe mm, don't fit like the podcast or aren't, you know, or we feel like we could really go in depth more, we write there. And then... Yeah, so next up, we have our single servings for the end of the year. And so the first one we'll be doing is uh, Lupin the Third Part 4. I'll be doing that with friends the Jay of Spade and Hobotron. 
So we'll be covering the, the revival of Lupin and maybe how it holds up as a revival. And then after that, uh, for the holidays, uh, I've decided to uh, hurt myself and watch the Ghost in the Shell 2017 movie. And I'll be doing a compare and contrast with the J.O. Spade and Future Friend on that versus the original Ghost in the Shell movie. And maybe really go into sort of where the new one misses the mark and how they compare and sort of the differences that maybe change how people read the context of the series. Oofa, that sounds like um, pain. Well, I mean, I already watched the Death Note movie from this year. I might as well hurt myself and go double on it. (laughs) At least it seems like the Death Note movie was enjoyable in an ironic way. It's, yeah, the Death Note movie is, like, fun in sort of an incompetent way, and it seems like Ghost in the Shell is, like, boring, which really sucks, but I know that they do, like, a lot of, like, shot-for-shot sort of remake stuff, so it would be interesting to see, like, how, how context, like, removes the meaning behind it. So I, I'm interested to do it, because I've never seen original Ghost in the Shell or the new Ghost in the Shell movie, so I, I want to kind of, like, compare it as someone who doesn't have the nostalgia for it. I'm sure the original is still good and stuff, but just, like, from a different perspective. Huh. Yeah, and so, until next time, I've been Chorpsaway. And I'm Zane Zero. And this has been Coco Disaster. Sweet dreams.